beautiful thoughts, I welcome you to an extremely curated, meticulously edited, easygoing, and tame podcast. This is Domesticated House Cat, the interview show. Ready for a wild fucking ride. The FCC and cowards aren't welcome here. This is Without Censor, the GRM Interview Podcast. Oh yeah, man. Oh, that song gets me every time. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because I'm saying fuck the government or uh, what have you, but man, it just gets me going. Anyways, welcome everyone to episode number two of the Without Censor podcast. As always, if you're a fan of us, you know who I am. I'm Josh and I'm here today also with Adam. Howdy. Today we have a very, very special guest. Now, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to give the guest too much credit. But, you know, our, our first opening guest was probably the most famous person we've ever seen in our lives. But this guy right here, oh, man, he, he might be he might be very close. So <clears throat> without further ado, let me let me well, give my oh, go ahead. You got to wash his balls. A yeah, bit. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Just listen. Just like I washed Lana Max balls. I got to I got to wash every guest's balls. All right, and, cool. and I'm thinking that this is probably going to be a thing every episode is I'm just going to give some give an intro like in this fashion to everyone. So, you know, it's only fair, I guess, right? True story. So this is my, for, for those of you who listen to episode one, you'll know that this is this what this is. This is my uh, Bruce Buffer fucking boxing introduction. <clears throat> Wait a minute. Yes, there it is. Okay, sorry, I fucked up. <laughs> <clears throat> he is the 16-time published author with dozens of, and dozens of published short stories and articles. He has been called a wizard of wordsmithery, a numinous novelist, if you will. He sits upon the edicule of editorial eminence. He has been called the Leonidas of literary luster and will kick you into a giant hole of $20 words from which you will never escape. He is Edward, the excellence of exposition. Oh, yeah. Oh, there he is. What's going on, Ed? What's happening? Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Probably more special than famous, but I appreciate the intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Ed, I honestly, I, I really do think you deserve you deserve it because, man, you, you put in the work to say the least. Yeah. I mean, no. Say what you will. Again, much like us. Say what you will. If people <laughs> if people don't like us, that's fine. But you can't deny that the work has been done. And same goes for you. The work has been done. Yes. The anthology of books you have written Andersonville once I believe it was once on a once upon a time in the weird west and uh, yeah, yeah. A, a number of books that you have written I mean certainly there have been many people that have tried to complete a novel or a book but you sir have done what, what was the number 16 
16 times I sat my butt in a chair. Yeah. <laughs> it's something to say. It's, it's bragging rights, I guess, for that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh... Yeah, it, it takes some, I mean, it does take discipline, but uh, a lot of people have stories, not a lot of people have the discipline, I guess, to just sit down and write. But, uh, right, right, you know, right. I got that, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure. Hold, hold on a second. Adam's having a little bit of headphone trouble here, so... Oh yeah, yeah. Try try cl- clicking it on the uh, on the bottom part, like the part that it connects into, where you connect into the extender. Try try wiggling around that. Maybe unplug it and plug it back in. Man, this this old technology. Just you got it now. <laughs> I, oh I, yeah, I think I'm good now. Okay, all right. Um. Anyways, so oh, sorry the the mensch with no name. I was trying to. Th- yeah. So these are to me. This is like really interesting because you know some of the and I don't want to rush too much into some of the things that we'll talk about, but, you know, for somebody like myself that I'm no expert at, you know, Western films, but, you know, as somebody that appreciates like Sergio Leone, I thought it was cool, cool nods of, uh, titles you made there. And then, um, yeah, I mean, even for you to write historical fiction, that is certainly a task in and of itself, not only to, write about the, uh, during, you know, the civil war period and creating characters and dialogue that reflects those times. I mean, dude, that is, that is quite the feat. So props to you for all that you've accomplished and yeah, I'll let Josh go ahead and take it. Oh, well, okay. So before we get into the, you know, uh, inquisition, if you will, (laughs) (laughs) um, what, what, Ed, do you have, I don't expect that. Nobody expects that. It's correct. No one ever (laughs) expects the, 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 the game rage inquisition. Yeah. So (laughs) do you have any social medias or any kind of, uh, anything to plug right here at the beginning before we, we get into it while we still have people's attention, you know, true story. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, uh, Social media wise, I mean, yeah, I've got them on Facebook and if you can spell my last name, you can find me pretty much anywhere on the internet, basically. Okay. Uh, I got a, uh, I got a, I have a blog, you know, I'm on Twitter. I'm a little bit on Instagram, TikTok. I have not dipped my toe in, but uh, it's pretty much, you look at my, if you look, if you can spell my name, you can find me. I'm, I'm all over the place. Uh, I got a new book coming out tomorrow. Um, 13th. It's kind of a Friday the 13th uh, take, like, uh, just a, the Friday the 13th to end all Friday the 13th is what I call it. And it debuts tomorrow. So, uh, that's the, that's the latest thing to plug. Really. What, what could you tell us about the book itself? Well, it's, uh, imagine. So, so like, uh, I mean, I could talk about how I came to write it or I could just like, do you want the short answer or the long answer? Basically. I mean, it's up to you. It's, we, we have all the time in the world. Oh yeah, here, man. So there's go, no, t- there's no time limit here. So the only thing I could say, don't try to, spoil it for some of the readers that out there just right, you know yeah. give give us a spoiler free synopsis I, I would say basically the concept is it's I, so it's imagine all the names change you know because i'm dealing with uh, somebody else's property and it's kind of a pastiche like uh, john scalzi's red shirts or something like that you know okay. he did star trek but he just changed all the names and everything so this is like if friday the 13th were to uh encompass the entire uh crazy continuity you know where he's body hopping and and like in part nine and he's like you know he turns back into a child in in manhattan and and like uh goes into space and all that in 10 like encompasses all of that i was trying to basically like uh basically like um make sense of all that continuity and everything um i used to write for star wars and one of the things that we did uh 
before Disney took over and everything, that was kind of like the pull of writing for Star Wars or the main drive was to like take stuff that didn't make sense and kind of like make it make sense. And like in the old days of Marvel, they used to call it like a no prize, basically. Like you, something, something didn't gel and we would, as writers, make it gel and everything. Mm-hmm. So for this, uh, Friday the 13th, you know, is about to be rebooted. They're going to have that show this year, uh, Crystal Lake or something, on yeah, Peacock, yeah. I think. So they're probably going to throw out the whole old continuity and everything. And, uh, you know, I grew up watching that and everything. And uh, I was like, I'm never going to get a chance to write this. So I'm just going to do it myself. You know, I'm just going to put it out there for the love, basically, and everything. And uh, it's something it's something I've never tried before. Like, normally I'm just writing my own stuff and everything. This is like a total pastiche, but it's like... It takes place after uh, Freddy versus Jason, but before 10. So it's like, imagine that Jason has suddenly come back. And this, in my book, he's called Joshua, Joshua Hotter, after Kane Hotter and everything. Uh, so he comes back again, as he always does. And uh, his modus operandi has changed. He's not just hanging around New Jersey. He's going like all over the country, like killing people. And it turns out that he's killing all the people who have ever defeated him. Like he's killing all the final girls, all the final guys, whatever. And each time he kills somebody, he becomes stronger and faster and stuff. And so Jason's father, who was never has never been in the series, you know, Joshua's father uh, in this, comes back from like a like a mission, like a Christian mission in like Guatemala. He's like a priest. And he comes back and he wants to uh, gather the survivors together, the, the, the last survivors which is like the Tommy Jarvis character and the daughter of the psychic from parts part seven, you know, and everything. And like uh, a couple of the you know, other characters and stuff. One of the survivors from Jason takes Manhattan and gather them all together to kind of face down Jason one last time and send him back to hell for, for good, basically, because uh, kind of to like redeem himself and everything, redeem his you know son's crimes and everything. So the basic gist is that it's like all the final girls and guys getting together from all the movies to fight Jason one more time and everything. Sounds uh, interesting. That's uh, the premise. I, I, so, uh, with the Halloween series that, uh, Rob zombie, I believe rebooted and how he kind of, uh, created, I guess, exposition for Mike Myers himself would there be something similar in the novel itself where uh, because you are bringing in the father figure into the fold for the Jason character, uh, are you, would, would you give him a little bit of a, a little bit of a sympathetic background or is that completely out the window that this is a nefarious character altogether and uh, there is nothing no, no, redeemable? No, no. Definitely for me, out of all the like major Hollywood slashers, you know, Freddy, uh, Michael Myers, Chucky, whatever, mm. the most sympathetic one to me has always been Jason because like, you know, he, he dies, you know, not of his own volition. He's, he's bullied and pushed into a, you know, or falls into a uh, lake, you know, and then the, the counselors are supposed to be watching him, you know, they're not watching him and he drowns and uh, he sees his mother killed. So he's out for revenge. Right. Because his mother's mother's the only one that ever, you know, there's a Norman Bates thing where mother's the only one that kind of like cared for him and stuff. And and there's also, uh, so I watch these with my daughters and stuff, right? <laughs> and uh, my daughter 
kind of made the observation, and I've heard it elsewhere before too, but it's like Jason never kills children, you know, because in his mind he's kind of childlike himself and everything. Right. Like there's there's only there's only one entry. I think it's it's part six where the kid the kids actually show up to the camp instead of the counselors. And he never he he stalks right through their sleeping bunk and everything, but he doesn't kill any kids ever. So I always feel like Jason is kind of he's kind of I wouldn't call him an anti-hero because he's slaughtering everybody, you know, anybody yeah. that basically gets a boner he's he's out to kill you know so, <laughs> but uh there's definitely like part of part of the inspiration for this also was like years ago uh i don't know how many years ago stephen king like put out a tweet or something that like he'd like to write something from jason's point of view mm-hmm. and that kind of dug into my head and i was like uh not only did i want to do that it had kind of already been done so uh one of the first things there were two books that i can point to two adult books that i can point to that kind of inspired me to write and everything. Um, Cause I was reading, you know, I read like Beverly Cleary and Judy Bloom and all that stuff when I was a kid, you know, Benicula mm. and all that shit, but not that it's shit. It's great. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, we, like, we get what like, you say. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but like uh, uh, about eighth grade or something, I was going to Catholic school and sister Marie read us out loud. Uh, Jack London's uh, call it a wild. And uh, besides the, uh, you know, the, uh, whatever, the pull of a, of a nun saying damn and, and cussing all the time. Like, oh, so she's reading this out loud. You know, the ending of, of that book is like super bloody, like the dog, Buck, like spoilers here for, you know, a hundred year old book or whatever, but <laughs> uh, jumps into this campfire and slaughters all of these like Native Americans, you know, like rips their throats out and stuff. And it's very like gory and crazy. And, and it kind of threw me for a loop, you know, that that was like going to happen in a book that that could happen in a book. So I was reading, uh, so my parents were very like, uh, boy, this is like spiraling. Oh, I'm talking about my parents now. Oh no. Oh, no, 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 no. Listen, like, we're we're, we're going to get into all that. Probably. Well, so, so, okay. So we'll just, we'll just say that's your new book coming out called third, what 13th the 13th right that's what it's called 13th okay so straight up and and where just real quick for everybody before we get deep in the weeds here where can everybody buy it just or where can they get get it you can get that on amazon and kindle and print um they don't let you pre-order they don't let you create pre-orders for print but it drops tomorrow it's already on pre-order for kindle so it'll be out paperback drops tomorrow so it'll be out january what wait what's tomorrow 12th 12th okay so january 12th for the people listening to this so if you're listening to this it's already out so you can go yeah, to Amazon yeah. or wherever. Yeah, and, for all you slasher fanatics Barnes and out Noble. there. Yeah, Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble. Yeah. And now, do you? It's, is it out. is it just coming out in English? Because I mean, we are hot in Belgium, so uh, is English <laughs> is the only, only language in it's English, in? Yeah. Oh, okay, all right. So it's only in English to the yeah. Belgians until I, until I find a Belgian translator. You know, sorry. Yeah, there's yeah. one out there. Hey. Hey, it's all right. Hey, hey, you know what? Maybe we can. Uh, maybe if there's one out there, you can hit us up and we can uh, we can get this made yeah. in Belgium. All right. So we'll do a Belgian audio book. Yeah. Absolutely. So, all right. Anyways, so let's, let's dial it back a little bit and let's just kind of, just to give everybody a nice little backstory on, on Ed, the author, right? Oh yeah. So, so, so going back to my parents, right? Yeah. So going back to your, your, uh, your parents and your abusive childhood, I mean, wait, uh, <laughs> um, but, but not, no, at so, all, not at all, but yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead. So my, my dad was a cop and my mom's a nurse, that kind of thing, whatever. But they were very like, it was a Catholic household. Yeah. And I had a, you know, Catholic grandmother and they were very, uh, they were very like on me about what I watched. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't watch rated R movies. I could only watch PG and stuff, mm-hmm. but I could read absolutely anything I wanted. 
So instead of watching rated R movies, I would get the paperbacks, like, like the novelizations. <laughs> yeah, and shit. yeah. So I'd read like a lot of Alan Dean Foster, a lot of like, you know, guys that were doing adaptations back then and everything. And the first, so the second, I was talking about the two books that kind of influenced me to be a writer. Mm-hmm. The second one, besides Jack London, which sounds like crazy ignominious or whatever, but it was the Simon Hawks novelization of Friday the 13th, part six, Jason Litz. <laughs> hmm. uh, I got it off the rack and my mom like went in the mall or something. I sat in the backseat of the parking lot and I read this thing like in an hour or two hours or something like cover to cover. Like it was the fastest thing I ever read, you know? And um, I was saying Stephen King uh, had tweeted this thing about writing for Jason's POV and everybody was like, oh, what a great idea. Simon Hart did that in Friday the 13th, part six's novelization. There were parts where you jumped into uh, Jason's head and those were the most compelling to me because it was like, it was just a peek at this um, just brain full of like disorder and rage. And like, uh, you know, it was gorier than anything that ever showed up in any of the movies. You know, he was like, he was chasing down Tommy and thinking about how much he hated Tommy. And like, he wanted to reach into his like, you know, chest cavity and pull out his entrails and fling him in the trees and all kinds of stuff. It was really wild shit, you know, really like gnarly. And uh, just the, the visceralness of the read kind of made me like, wow, I want to do this thing. I want to do this kind of thing too, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I don't know. How it's a you- weird dichotomy to say like yeah, my two most influential books were Jack London and the novelization of Friday 13th Part 6. You know? How old but, were you uh, at this point? Jesus would have been like 89 or 88 or something like that. So I wasn't, I wasn't out of middle school yet. So, uh, like 13, maybe 12. Okay. 13 on 13. That would so, be pretty so, romantic. Okay. I don't so, yeah. know if that's true, but. <laughs> so that was, that was about the time when you kind of were thinking, okay, I, I kind of want to maybe do this or yes. kind of get into writing. And so once, once you hit, had that hit, what was your first, what was the first thing that you wrote? that you ever wrote with, with you being in mind of like, Oh, I want to be an author. The first thing I started writing. So I was watching a bunch of, I started sneaking movies at the same time. And like, I actually, I think I saw like an edited for version, edited for TV version of the road warrior. Oh, so okay. like the first thing I started writing, I filled up notebooks of this story about this guy who was like, it was in the future. It was a post-apocalyptic future, mm. but there was still like technology and he was a truck driver and he was like, it was kind of like, uh, so mass communications had dropped all over the world and everything relied on like courier services and stuff. Like there were no GP, well, there were no GPSs back then, but yeah, like, yeah. you know, there was no mass communication. So everything relied on courier services and this trucker had to like, had this, uh, he got hired to like get this satellite component that they would launch into space that would turn the whole network back on or something. So everybody was after him and should. And uh, his name was Clutch Barracuda. I remember that. <laughs> oh, what a great fucking name that, for a that character. Is pretty, uh, that's, that's a great yeah, character. Right? Yeah. So, like, uh, I filled up notebooks where, of this, like, road warrior, like, barely disguised road warrior thing and everything. And, uh, you know, the trucks were kind of like, you remember Masked, Masked Crusaders oh, and all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kinda old I, for you guys, I, I don't know. I, I've seen that. Yeah, I, I've seen it. So I know what you're talking about with the yeah, we're like, the, yeah. They had the truck with the like jet that could, you know, the trailer would open up and there'd be a jet in the back and it right. would take off and yeah, shit. Yeah, so yeah. it was all that kind of stuff. It was ripping off basically everything that I loved at the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
which, you so, know, I mean, that's most of most creativity when you're, when you're starting out is, is just homages or, I mean, you could call it ripping off as, yeah. as an extreme version, but yeah, you're just kind of inspired and, and that's coming out right. Um, in, right. Your, in your works. You, so. you, you, uh, you are, you imitate what you're, what you're inspired by. Yeah. Like you, you grab everything that's around you that, that you love and then you want to do and you just do the same thing for a while. So it was road warrior, but like extremely gory. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. Okay. As, as so, any 14 year old uh, or 15 year old would probably be, yeah. you know, right. Taking it to the extreme. So, okay. So you, you, you get that going and you, you do that, you fill up the notebooks. So from, from that day that you wrote your first thing or your first not novelization, cause I mean, I don't know how, how deep you got into it, but when, from that point, did you actually get something out there pub i mean i don't know if published is the right oh my gosh, word man. but how, what was the time frame of hey here i am i'm writing this first not this first idea down on paper and then now how many years later and then what what was the thing that was published first was it that was it that old mad max uh, satellite story or no definitely not definitely <laughs> not i tried to do that as a script actually and, and the funny part is i i adapted i made it like I made it that he was out to avenge somebody and you think it's his wife the whole time. And then it turns out it's his dog. And then they did John wick. And I was like, you know, what sucks too yeah. is that that twisted metal show on whatever paramount, I think it is. They, that's kind of the yeah. same because twisted metal didn't really have a story, the video game. So they took a thing where basically, no. yeah, it's the apocalypse and it's courier services that are going around and anything mm. that got, has to get delivered. So it's like, oh man, that sucks. They, they, no. they already did it. The it's zeitgeist, like, yeah, exactly, man. Yeah, the, the zeitgeist, <laughs> the collective consciousness. Yeah, like, exactly. Don't put it down. Somebody else does. That's always what happens. Yeah. True story. But, um, uh, the first thing, let me think. There's so many time frame. Uh, that was like '93. I graduated high school. Okay. And I was writing that thing all through high school and passing it to my friends, and they loved it and stuff and everything. Even though it looked like, it looked like, you know, the, the killer from Seven. It looked like those notebooks. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like okay. Cramped ass writing. Yeah. Kevin. Threw up on the subway on this guy's shoes. You know, it was crazy. <laughs> but uh, uh, so from '93, I started like I moved um to Chicago, like from, I was in the suburbs. I was in Calumet city where blues brothers are from. Okay. I moved up to Chicago, uptown. Uh-huh. And, um, I was writing there. I was trying to submit to like uh, fantasy science fiction magazine. I was getting rejected, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, then I went into film school and I, I turned to screenwriting and, and like, uh, student films and stuff like that. Right. And I didn't actually, the first thing I ever, ever got published, like I was a kid, I wrote like a poem about Billy the Kid or some shit to some like uh, <laughs> Billy because I was in a Young Guns phase, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in uh, in uh, uh, I wrote some like poem about Billy the Kid to some like crazy you know Billy the Kid fan club thing, and they put it in their newsletter. That was the first thing I ever ever got published. But the first time I was ever professionally published, it didn't happen until like maybe two thousand eight or something. Like that's how long it took, you know. Oh, wow. So from we're talking about 19. Yeah, yeah. Like 20, 20 years or so. Yeah. Like from 1998 when I, I, I was, you know, getting, getting out of film school and oh, okay. until about 2008 was when you were, you were, you uh, were that's when I was seriously writing. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, so it took about 10 years from when you started seriously getting into it to get something yeah. actually published. And, and it was a British magazine that posted, like bought a short story of mine finally or something that was about like, uh, like Blackfoot Indians hunting vampires, you know, or something crazy. <laughs> and 
Uh, I remember they they would like uh, it was I was a little bit a uh, little bit near dark. They would hide from the sun and everything. I remember Indians came across the camp and they were like the horses were all there, but the guys were under buffalo robes with the with the reins tied around their like wrists or some uh, shit. Right, right. So when they they scared the horses, like the horse dragged the guy out from the robe and he caught fire and all this. <laughs> it was all right. It was not a bad story, I think. But how, how did how did um, you uh, how did you measure? success for your writing is it was it more internal to say that uh you got you know you completed a story and that was where ultimately the satisfaction came from or was it monetary where you know you you mentioned getting added to this uh, uk publishing is where where does the satisfaction of writing come come for you for it used to be like Oh my God, I, I have to, it, it, it changes in increments, you know, as you reach a level, then you want to get to another level, you know? So it's like, first it was like, Oh my God, if I don't get published, I, you know, I, I'll die. Mm-hmm. And then you break through that and you start publishing and then you realize, well, I'm, I'm publishing, but it's getting into little, it's just little dinky stuff here and there. I'm getting like 25 bucks, 28 bucks. Then you're like, Oh, I got to make, you know, a big advance or some money or something. <laughs> And um, then I, like, at one point I wrote a book for Andersonville was for Delray and I got like, you know, I got a five figure advance for that. So that was like, Oh my God, I made it. This is it. You know, now from now on, my life's going to change. And <laughs> no, it fucking did not. <laughs> you know, I'm working with Josh. So obviously the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, but, uh, <laughs> that is true. It actually probably got much worse after that. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, I mean, it was weird. It was like when the first thing was finally accepted, and I made a little bit of money. It's, I don't know if they, if somehow the community of whatever publishers kind of sees your, that you have credits and then they start, it, it's like, it's, it's like you break through, you know, and then yeah. other people start buying your stuff. And I, I started selling a lot more, you know, things and everything. Right. So, and, yeah, it's, uh, it's... so then the measure. Oh no, go ahead. Yeah. Well, the measure of success then becomes, well, I want to do this and nothing else, you know, and that's kind of, that killed me for like a long time. Like, I mean, that twisted my guts up for a long time because it's almost impossible. You know, it's like, you have to have a major, you have to basically get adapted into a movie if you want to be a writer and and make a living at it. You know, I don't know too many writers that just do books that make a living. I don't know any personally, but I mean, there are some out there for sure. And there's guys that churn out like, uh, that are like factories, you know, they churn out like a couple books a year and everything, you know, like on Kindle and stuff. And I can't do that. You know, I, I tried, I tried to like just be this machine and, and kind of like, I already aspired to that anyway. I didn't really try that hard. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. put out like, I average like a book, maybe two a year or something like that. That's more than most people. But, uh, I, yeah, I couldn't do this. Like I couldn't do this assembly line kind of writing that a lot of people do and everything where it's just like, you know, uh, Walter Gibson, the guy that wrote The Shadow in the 30s, you know, The Pulp, he has the world's record for, like, the amount of books he could put out. You know, he put out, like, hundreds of these shadow novels, and it was just him writing them, you know. And um, I couldn't do that. You know, I, I, I got to, like, I, maybe it's the historical fiction angle because I kind of gravitate towards that. It's very research-heavy. You know, I take a lot of time on stuff. And uh, more than I more than I probably should if I want to make a living at it and be like, you know, uh, constantly uh, successful. But, yeah, then the measure of success becomes I want to make a living doing this. But um, I kind of had to not really give that up. But, uh, you know, I've got kids and everything. So I've had to work for a living and I have to work like 40 hour jobs like everybody. And uh, yeah, 
the measure of success then kind of becomes um for me personally the the kind of the feedback you get from readers and stuff and people and review people that bother to put up reviews and stuff you know if something moves them enough to put up a review that becomes pretty cool when i when i did my uh my Zorniel Hurston book, my it's like Rainbringer. It's uh, this Harlem Renaissance writer, and I pitted her against like Cthulhu Mythos stuff and everything, you know. And, and right. like uh, it turned out that a lot of people weren't even aware of who that woman was, you know, that she was an actual person and stuff. And I had people like contact me privately and say like, you know, I didn't know this was a real person, and it led me to her books, and I want to thank you for that and everything. And that, that's pretty cool, you know. Like if I, if that book doesn't sell a million copies, but it brings people to this, you know, forgotten writer who's so much, you know, on a higher level than I am and everything, and has kind of been forgotten, that's pretty cool too, you know. So there's like different, there's different levels of success now. It just, it just depends on uh, your passion, I guess, you know. Like yeah. uh, if you're following your passion, then and and people are enjoying it, you know, then uh, I feel like there's some success there. I still want to make a living at it. You know, I still look towards that. I strive for that. But uh, in the meantime, you know, this is, it's not, uh, what, what's the, what's the phrase? Something like, it's not the, it's not the best coming from the, from the end of the wild bunch. He says like, it's not the best life, but it'll do, you know, so yeah. I'm kind of going with that. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I definitely don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to, at least make a not maybe not necessarily you're not, we're not gonna be millionaires right but you know eh, you know comfortable living doing what you love um no it shouldn't and it shouldn't be right everybody should be able to do what they love and make money doing it i mean and yeah. i make a little bit of money and enough to like you know pay bills once in a while and stuff and that's all right you know it's not bad yeah yeah absolutely. i buy stuff from my kids with it it's yeah cool. i mean hey you know whatever small victories you can get to keep pushing forward right that's that's the goal make maybe enough to right. to break even so that you can continue doing it right that's that's kind of the right lesson i guess until you get a break the, or whatever it is you know what sucks is was when i got that advance you know like you really do think from then on you know everything's gonna be gravy after this right know? And then it doesn't come and you're like, oh man, you know, and then it's like, I got to go back. It's like getting booted back down in the minor leagues sometimes, you know? Yeah. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? You just work at it. So you, the good thing about writing is as opposed to being an athlete, I don't have a time limit on my, you know, my body's not going to give out on me or something. Right. <laughs> you know, well, I can just keep, I can keep writing until, yeah. until you, know, you get, anymore, until you like, get, until you get dementia or, you know, something, you know, you can, yeah, you can, you can be, you can shit your pants all you want and still be able to fucking write, write books. That's true. I can write in the bathtub. Yeah, exactly. Sit in the tub and your own shit and just write. Hey, maybe that's what you do is you, that's the, that's the code to defeating the matrix here is you, you get to the point where you're, brain still works and your body only works enough just to type on a keyboard and then you just sit in a tub <laughs> yeah. and you just crank out books for 24 hours a day and then that's how you'd make yeah. it and then you can't enjoy it because you're a vegetable so you know <laughs> yeah because i'm all yeah i can't go to fucking belize because i'm all fucked up. yeah <laughs> Whatever. exactly yeah so uh you had mentioned you know having to work these these 40 hour me, me and adam I, well i mean i don't know i call them i call them the matrix jobs all right it's yeah for sure it's it's your horse shit job you got to do to make enough money to be able to do what you love until you can make the money doing what you love so you had right. mentioned you know you've obviously had to do that what are what are some of the odd jobs or or interesting jobs you've had to do in your in your time of you know making ends meet <laughs> 
it's hard to call them interesting, <laughs> but I have done like a, a lot of jobs. I mean, I've started off like at grocery stores. I worked uh, you know, all kinds of retail jobs and shit. One of my favorite jobs that I ever worked, I was a, I was a part-time manager at a revival movie house, like a 1929 movie theater in Chicago, this famous one called the, the Music Box. Uh-huh. That uh, these two, <laughs> these two gay Republican dudes bought it <laughs> for when it was a porno theater, <laughs> and like revamped it, and like and, you know they were antiquarians, so they like refurbished it and made it exactly like it was. So it was like, you know, they they fixed the pipe organ, and there was the 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 there was a facade of it being it's like a hundred seat theater, and um, it looked like a like an outdoor. It was painted up to look like you were sitting outdoors. Yeah at night so the ceiling would uh had these projected lights that would go up to look like clouds passing over stars and stuff it was just beautiful it was like if there was a church if movies were your god the music box would be like a church you know right 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 <laughs> it was really beautiful and we had and we had all these like uh interesting people come in not just the usual like uh weirdo cinephiles that just kind of haunt chicago and everything but like you know we had like harry in there we had ray harry in there we had larry fishburne we had gregory peck uh, I told you my Gregory yeah. Peck story. What, why, don't you, why don't you give me the Gregory Peck story real quick, if you if you would be <laughs> so Gregory kind? Peck story. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is like a you know Gregory Peck, you know, uh, to kill a mockingbird. This like oh yeah, uh, star of of stars. You know, this like legendary actor and everything. And he does a Q and A because his son did a documentary about him or something. Whatever. He's there. He's doing a Q and A, and um, it's packed. And we're on the sidelines, me and my buddy Joey that worked there, we're on our sidelines or whatever. And we're listening to people stand up and ask questions. And this nebbish guy kind of stands up and uh, gets the meal, you know, they pass him the mic. And he proceeds to ask this long, really drawn out and detailed question about like really movie nerd question about like the blocking and the setup and the placement of the scene of uh, the characters and Masala in the bathhouse in Ben-Hur. And as he's going on and on and on, people start looking at each other and kind of mur- murmuring and all this shit and everything. And uh, the guy gets to the end of this thing and everything. And Gregory Peck has like got the mic like, waiting to answer. He's just he's got that scowl, you know. He's like scowling at you and everything. Uh-huh. And the guy finishes and uh, yes, yeah, so I just wondered. Uh, I don't even remember what the question was, but it went on for like a while. And the guy sat down, waiting for his answer, or whatever. And Gregory Peck stares at him for a minute with the mic, and he goes. You do realize, sir, that I wasn't in Ben Hur. <laughs> and like <laughs> the whole freaking theater just like erupts in fucking laughter. And I, I swear, I said, I think they had to confiscate the guy's shoelaces and belt on the way out because he probably tried to kill himself when he went home. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure he did, man. God, that is such a great fucking story, man. That's hilarious. So that was my favorite matrix uh, job. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was a, I would consider that a fringe matrix job. Cause you're, you're still kind of like, you're still being exposed to the arts and like, like, uh, what's his name? Roger Ebert would come there. It was like Gene Siskel's favorite theater and stuff. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was just cool, man. The people were cool. And like, there were so many, I got so many stories out of it. There were so many odd characters. We had a serial masturbator where we always turned the caps. I mean, it's just crazy. <laughs> this, it could be a movie on its own, you know, this, this place. Um, and the two gay Republicans with their massive, like, like, uh, fur coats would come in in the winter. Like, I mean, like, like uh, Rufus T. Firefly, Groucho Marx, big ass, like fur coats from horse feathers or something. You know, I mean, this is, 
on their way. We're going to Nevis. Make sure you, you know, whatever, balance the drawers and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, crummy uh, jobs, the only thing. Crummy matrix jobs. The worst I ever had was a city mortgage. Oh, my God. I worked there for like a temp job when I first moved out here to California, and I wound up at city mortgage. Uh-huh. And uh, those guys were like, it was Cal Fed first, and it was an okay place to work, and then city mortgage bought it. And um, they wanted uh, to try, it was a temp, and they trained all, they wanted to train all the temps as like loan officers or something. And, and um, the, the loan officer training went on for like three days or something. And finally somebody came by my cubicle and was like, uh, why aren't you in the loan officer training? And I was like, because I don't want to be a loan officer, I said. I was like, I'm not interested in that and stuff. Uh, I'm cool just being a temp. It's fine. I was the only one that didn't go to the training. <laughs> and then it was like, it turned out the city mortgage like a week before they were going to do the takeover, like the com- complete the takeover. They fired all the temps anyway, <laughs> like even the people that were in the training. So I was like, okay, at least I didn't have to do that. The only thing I remember from that was sitting in on one of those trainings and the guy who was doing the presentation kept um, referring to the, uh, the pros, the progress of a home loan through the system as the pig going through the python. He said it over and over and over again. The pig in the python. This is where the pig's in the python and all this. This is where the pig is in the python. And, oh, <laughs> fuck. That was awful. <laughs> and uh, I ended up fired from there eventually. They, I think they forgot I worked there because, like, I was not doing anything in the last month that I worked there. I would just come in and open a file and, like, sit it on my desk and then I'd read Gutenberg shit on, online and play PBM games and stuff. And if anybody walked past my cube, I'd just turn quickly to look like I was doing something and, you know, turn the page of the folder and then just go back to what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, uh, what primarily... Yeah, so fired me from there. Yeah, what? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, what primarily brought you out to uh, California? Because you kind of mentioned that you are, you know, a passionate writer and reader and in addition i imagine you are also a cinephile so did you come out to california with the hopes of being a screenwriter or just trying to make it out here quote unquote yeah absolutely i went to film school at columbia in chicago and um that was my thing i was coming out to do screenwriting i um, met my soon to be ex-wife there not soon 19 years to be (laughs) ex-wife and we moved out together and stuff and like uh yeah, um, I was trying to do screenwriting, but I had about as much luck, luck getting screenplays read as like George Bush finding oil in Texas. <laughs> oh, or, or fi- I just finding weapons of mass what, destruction yeah, in Iraq. Destruction. <laughs> <laughs> finding weapons of mass destruction. You know? It was just, I was like, I was terrible at it. I, I couldn't network because I was working all these, you know, shit jobs and I had to support my family and stuff. I couldn't do the... I couldn't go to the lunches and the parties and the, and the, and the, all that shit. I just couldn't get in the, into the orbit of the people that would probably have helped me with that career at one point i had to turn down a job at miramax because uh i couldn't do the schedule you know like my wife made more money than me so like you know that was that was just the way it went i was not prepared for the uh for all the stuff besides the writing of the screenplays you know i did do a movie in 2009 about it no no 2000 when was that i don't know i did a western though i was trying to do uh when i first started writing my first book that i ever finished writing was a straight up western because i wanted to be like larry mcmurtry or something and uh nobody read that stuff not for me anyway because i didn't look like a cowboy you know i went to (laughs) one of these like uh 
cowboy festivals to sell books. And man, I didn't have a 10 gallon hat. I didn't have a bolo tie. I was fucked. <laughs> I couldn't talk horses. It was like, nobody wanted to read my shit. You know, everybody around me was like, you know, Elmer yeah. Kelton or some shit. And I, I just didn't, I didn't look the part. Yeah, they're, just they're, like past. they're looking at you going, Who, who's this goddamn city boy in who's, here who's right this now? Yankee? Yeah, who's, who's this, this Yankee doodle? Shite. Get a rope. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I was, I was over there with my pace for Connie sauce, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, so wait, um, so you finished, you finished college, what, in like 98, you graduated? And then that was when you yeah, came out here? Yeah, I think it was then. So then 90- I came out here like 2000, actually, like 99 or 2000, yeah. So, so pre nine eleven, you you came out to California. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pre nine eleven, I've been here that long, and I never made any headway like screenwriting and stuff. So, like, I mean, there was there's always like around here. I mean, everybody always wants to take a meeting. Everybody always wants to have lunch, and and you, everybody wants to get your hopes up, but nothing right. ever happens. You know, like, or or, or rarely. I, I guess things happen for some people, just not for me. <laughs> Um, but I always had close calls that never went anywhere. You know, like I was in talks with Edward James almost into a Western about Joaquin Murrieta for a minute. I was trying to get on the Star Wars live action show before they had a star, before they had a name for it or even, or even before Disney took over, you know? Yeah. And, uh, like I was always on the fringe, but never quite. I'm like, I was always like famous adjacent. You're always, <laughs> you know? you're always the bridesmaid, but never the bride, as they say. Never the bride. Yeah. Never the bride. How did one go about trying to make those arrangements to speak with, uh, you know, uh, television or even movie executives? Is that something that you had to talk to some kind of agent to pitch a script or were you making friends that were in the area, in your local area that were trying to do the same thing, whether it was screenwriting or acting? Uh, how, how were you trying to climb the ladder? I suppose. It's hard because uh, a lot of it, when you don't have any contacts at all, is just cold, cold calling, you know, cold you're cold calling, calling yeah. agents to try to, you know, pitch stuff to them. You're, you're cold calling, like just, uh, you know, you're, you're going through the phone book and, or, or, or some directory and finding like, you know, studios, anything with studio in it and sending it sending him stuff. And uh, I talked to Rob Zombie at one point at a convention. I mean, and he told me send him something and I got all excited. You know, he gave me his address and everything. I mean, like, it's just uh, whatever, anything you can do, basically, <laughs> like whatever you can, whatever route you can find. I don't think there's a path of success. I think it's just, you know, it's different for every single person and everything. So uh, my thing was, you know, at first it was cold calling. I saw that wasn't going to go anywhere. It's very much your relationships and who you know and stuff. <clears throat> and so uh, I didn't know anybody. You know? Yes. So I was just trying to meet people at, at one point. So it's more of a, it doesn't really matter what you know, because, you know, you're you're an educated man from Columbia with, you know, a, a degree in, in filmmaking. And <laughs> yeah, it's so, so helpful. Yeah, you got me my city mortgage job. Right, yeah. And, <laughs> and you can't, yet you can't get any kind of headway out here in the actual, you know, industry. So it's really, it's, it's really doesn't matter what you know, it's who you know, right? That's kind of the, the moral, at least. Yeah, and just what you do, like, yeah. Like the, the best piece of advice I've found like reading stuff is like Robert Rodriguez wrote this book. Um, I forget what his book is about and guerrilla filmmaking or whatever. And it's just like, uh, you know, go out and do it, go to film school for like a semester to learn how to use a camera, to learn how to cut film, to you know, learn the screenwriting format. And then you just drop out and go make movies. You know, that's, a, that's what I should have done. 
but my mom really wanted me to finish college and she was like, you know, who you got to finish. And, and, uh, I should have just gone out. You know, I should, I had a buddy, uh, who's now like, you know, crewing on everything. And, um, he went out right before I did and like invited me to go with him. And I was tied up with my girlfriend at the time. And I, you know, I just made all these excuses and didn't go. And, and I regret that, you know, like the thing to do is learn the basics go out and make movies like Martin Scorsese had a thing like he made a student film or whatever and he went to uh before some producer or something and showed it to him and the guy was like yeah it's really impressive now go make a movie because nobody cares <laughs> you know about all that stuff yeah. you know? it's only what you do it's well, you're as good as your next thing you know, as your as your as the last thing you did or whatever so, yeah so do you think that Obviously, with the advent of technology, right? Okay, us sitting here doing this right now, any by any normal standard, 10 or 15, maybe even 20 years ago, we would have to try to get hired and work at a radio station as an intern and then yeah. work our way up to eventually maybe in 10 or 15 years hosting a show. But maybe get I mean, in front of a mic. Right. Yeah. Well, but now all you literally need is an internet connection and a cell phone. That's that's basically it. And I mean, the cell phone might even be optional. You, you really just need an internet <laughs> connection. And I mean, here we are. We, you can have your own radio show essentially so do you think yeah, that you, the, need, you got the basics all you need is an you know, audience you know i mean and right. that's that's up to you to build you know i mean it's and it's to some point it's I, I what i really hate about this kind of endeavor creative endeavor is like you're you really are it's like an extension of high school it's a popularity contest you yeah. really do have to like you know you do rely on other people you rely on the word of mouth of other people and the appreciation of other people yeah and that's, if they don't take the time to pass it on it's like you know thanks oh yeah well shit like we, the same thing is with us right we we've been we've been doing the work right we've been putting in the work in the hours and it's and it's the goddamnedest thing i can't we not, we can't figure it out how we have all these people that listen every fucking week but no one wants to follow us on social media it doesn't make any yeah, goddamn it's like, sense it's just a click yeah. just a click of the button right uh, for it's me it. it's like just a review just yeah. pass it to, even give the book for free to somebody you know that's fine by me like I, I, a lot of the mere misses I've had with like, have been like big writers coming to me like, uh, and saying, Oh, I really love this. I'm a fan of it. And I'm like, I want to say, please just pass it on to somebody, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, like Jeff Darrow, uh, wrote me out of the blue, the guy that did, uh, he did hard boiled and I don't know, he's a, he's a comic book guy, you know, he did stuff for dark horse with Frank Miller and everything. He did hard boiled. Mm -hmm. He was a concept artist for like the matrix and stuff. And uh, he loved Merkaba Writer. He just wrote me out of the blue. And I thought it was one of my friends, like, fucking with me, you know, <laughs> at first. But then I got him on the phone. And, yeah, and then I, I sat with him at a couple of Comic-Cons. He let me sit down. And, like, I was meeting all these people through him. Like, uh, uh, Robert Kirkman came over. I gave him oh, a shit. book because he oh, just, damn. you know, all that kind of shit. But it's like they don't crack the book or they don't, like, yeah, they don't pass you on. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I've had people, like, I've had big, bigger writers tell me, oh, this is great. I'm going to recommend it for a stoker award but the recommendation never comes you know it's like yeah uh, fuck man okay, i know what it is. make it happen please yeah put me I, over you know <laughs> yeah i know what it is and it's that's that it's no one wants to put anybody else over and everybody wants to gatekeep and say oh shit man i had to fucking go through all this horse shit to get to where i'm at so guess what you're gonna have to go through the same thing but it's kind of like fuck man as parents, right, we want to have our children not go through the same shit that we had to go through, right? We want to do better than our parents. So, yeah, you know, wouldn't yeah, people, I do not want, I want it to be easier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so wouldn't the people stuff, like, like, if, like if for me, like if we make, well, when, 
when we make it and we can help others out, I'm, I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, fuck off, go away. I don't want, I'm, you have to go through the suffering that I did. No, man, if I can make it easier, yeah, I already man, cracked the code. Yeah, I cracked the code to the matrix. Let me, let me help you crack the code as well. You know, shit, exactly. come on this like, way. What do you got? Show me what you got. You yeah. Know? And if it's great, definitely I'll tell somebody. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. So it's like it sucks. It's that whole like gatekeeping aspect of of the the entertainment industry as a whole. And it, it applies to music because, I mean, we've seen it. We've been a part of it with with the music industry. We've we've dealt with it with, you know, I mean, obviously with podcast, everything, everything that we do. It's it's just everyone wants to keep you out and no one wants to try to just give you that one little bit, that one little morsel that'll get you over and get you to the next level or whatever. Yeah. You got to go out and fucking get it yourself. Yeah. So I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, don't get like, it either. Like I talked about Jeff. He's, he's a great guy. He's, he's I want, I don't want to lump Jeff in that because he's really a nice guy and stuff. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, just, yeah. what happened with him was, uh, I don't think the dark horse people that he, he did pass me to like dark horse, like to Scott Alley and all these guys. And they didn't, uh, they, I don't think they cracked the books, honestly. Well, it's probably, I don't think they look. Yeah. I would say it's probably one of those things where, yeah, there are good people in the entertainment industry for sure. I mean, there definitely yeah. are good people that want to help you out, but they're not necessarily in a position where they're the one who's going to right. make it happen for you. Yeah. They, they Jeff can, was not the, he was not the power guy. Right. Yeah, he was, he was, he was like, I love this. I think this is great. You know, you guys should do this, but you know, they just, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. And it's they, honestly, they don't, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, you might as well start your own and shit. And I talked you know? to the guy, I, like I, I met the editor that he recommended me to afterwards and he was like, who, you know, he didn't know what the fuck <laughs> I was talking about. He didn't know who the fuck I was. So was uh, it, Jeff definitely like passed me on, but they, they just, it goes in a pile somewhere and they don't look at it. So there, there was a potential there that you could have written, uh, comic books at one point or or am i mistaken on that i wanted to do comic books but uh like a a couple of my novels macabre writer and monster and fear both started out as graphic novels Mm -hmm. and um i just couldn't find an artist that was uh, uh, the thing about working with young upcoming artists is they want you to write their stuff they don't want to draw your stuff and and they all want to draw Batman, <laughs> like or some variation of Batman, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, guys, you know, but uh, you know, and or they don't want to defer their costs, which I totally understand because everybody's trying to get paid. But it's like, you know, you got to make a sacrifice when you start. Now you got to like, you got to you know take bite the bullet a little bit. And uh, a lot of the, we went around Comic Con with like scripts. Me and my writing buddy Jeff Carter, and like we just couldn't make anything happen. Yeah, nobody was. Uh, interested in working with writers it's hard to break in as a writer in comic books too because it's a visual medium you know so like the artists have a leg up on you if an artist can write they're awesome you know they're they're gods but like most of them i don't think most of them can yeah well i mean if an artist can just write write a comprehensible shitty story then they're good to go i mean they're in because they can pretty much as long as they can do a splash page that you can you'll want to hang on your wall there's an exception for that there's rob liefeld who does writing and uh art and not not exceptional like either one <laughs> it still made it good. it still made it <laughs> yeah I, that's yeah that's a strike of lightning right there i, I mean the, you can say about that. the guy is still hanging his hat on deadpool like he reminds everybody hey yeah. i created deadpool like oh well thanks i mean that's all you've been saying for the last <laughs> 30 or 40 years at this point but yeah. i don't know yeah so everything i said about you're only as good as the last thing you did i mean there's, uh, I guess I'm bullshit. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Whatever he does, he can just fall back on Deadpool. Yeah. Uh, but it is interesting now that it's, um, and it, maybe it's because they have the leverage, but I've seen, uh, 
writers and artists. There's a new, I think, uh, publisher called Distillery now uh, with with Scott Snyder, Brian Azrilo, and a bunch of artists and uh, writers that are trying to make more creator owned stuff. So, uh, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe the dynamic has changed more to maybe I don't even have to go to DC or Marvel to get writing. Yeah, done I comic don't think book. you want to really. Yeah, you, I don't like, think you really want, want to go to them anymore. Yeah, you would just want to create your own thing. So I don't know. There, I think for you, like it, that's still on the table. You know, it's just. At this point, it, it'll just be finding an artist. And if that's something you want to yeah. visit down the road, I mean, it'd be cool to find out if you would uh, want to visit that at some point. Yeah, I would love to. Like Jeff asked me to do, he did Shaolin Cowboy. That's like his thing he's working on mostly now. And he, he did this, he did a novella, uh, kind of a Shaolin, Shaolin Cowboy Adventure magazine or something. He only put out one issue, but mm. uh, he wanted me to write the next one. And um, yeah, I don't know. Dark Horse just didn't go for it or something. So. Mm-hmm. I would have loved to have made the jump from writing prose to like writing uh, yeah, comic book scripts. I mean, I've done it. I, I did comic book scripts. They just never got produced, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit and I, I got to know about the yeah. star Wars shit. Cause you, you, you've touched on it a couple of times and yeah. obviously, I mean, we're, we're huge star Wars fans over here. Uh, maybe not so much of the new stuff, but you know, the star Wars in general. So how yeah. did that, how did that come about? What, what year is it? How do you get into writing something for Star Wars magazine, right? That's what it was. It was the Star Wars magazine. It was uh, Star Wars Insider. Insider yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. Um, I think it was like 2006, maybe 2008, somewhere around there. Right around the same time I sold my first story. Um, the, uh, the hyperspace online was like the online content for StarWars.com and everything, the yeah. exclusive stuff. And Pablo Hidalgo, who's the guy that's now on the story group or whatever with Leland Chi and all those guys, and um, he was kind of in charge of hyperspace and all that. And they did this uh, contest called uh, What's the Story? And every month, and I found out about it in the last four months it was running or something like that. Uh, like I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of it. I was working at 2K Games at night. That's one of the other Matrix jobs. It wasn't quite a Matrix job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was working uh, at nights at 2K uh, doing QA and I, you know, found this and everything. So like uh, I submitted to it. It was basically, uh, they would take a screenshot every month. They'd publish a screenshot on the website of uh, some minor character from the background of star Wars or something. The first one that I remember seeing was uh, in the Jalassan crawler. When they pick up three PO and R2, uh-huh. there's this little droid that looks like a stove <laughs> that like rolls by or something with a pipe and everything on the back. It looks literally looks like a cast iron stove or something. <clears throat> and it, it rolls by or something. And, and, and basically, so for characters like that, they then ask you to come up with a backstory for it, or they'll give you a little bit of a writing prompt. Like this is what this droid is. What's his story? You know what? This is his, or this is this character's name. What's his story? Right, you know, right, like, okay. This is where this character is. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I started submitting to that and I did one, the first one I did was for that droid and I turned it into, it was a, it was a binary like mining droid or some shit that like uh, Tuscans would bust open for like the water catches and everything. Cause it would like drill down and, and, and you know, that pipe, it would fling out like sand and rock. Oh, and yeah. um, so it had like a little water catch pocket and Tuscans would break it open and stuff. And I, I had this whole history of like, you know, some kind of miners, pro- water prospectors riot. I wrote all this stuff into it and I got it. And, um, you know, they gave it to me. Like I won that month. And then the, the next month was, I think uh, they did, 
this little uh, Ugnot guy who shows up um, on Jabba's sail bar. He's wearing all orange. He's all pimped out in his orange jumpsuit and everything. Uh, his name was Yoxget or something. So I, I submitted for him, and I won that one too. And uh, I basically won like, I think, three consecutive times. Yeah. Three, yeah. yeah. The other one was like a bounty hunter, Bane Mallard, the last one. And they gave me, uh, like, they, they, they did uh, they did an action figure of him. So I still got the action figure with the little stuff on the back and everything. That was all me and everything. That was pretty cool. They, like, adapted it. So back then it became canon, you know, because this was before, like, uh, before Disney took over. So right. it was, like, everything that, everything EU, expanded universe that anybody came up with, writers came up with, became canon and stuff. So because I did this like three months in a row or something, then Pablo emailed me and was like, hey, do you want to like write some stories for us and stuff? Just give me your like six best pitches or something. So I did. And then I ended up doing, um, God, what was it? It was a boxing story. <laughs> it was a sh- uh, shock boxing. It was like, is what they call boxing in Star Wars. Uh-huh. And they, they gleaned that from uh, old West End games, like role-playing game that had all these supplements because like Pablo started out writing for that, I think. And a lot of the Star Wars writers did. Um, and I had all those books because I played that game, like, like religiously for like two years. And, yeah, yeah. I ran it. and um, so, yeah, I got to write uh, this shock boxing story that had uh, Bryn Derwin, the, the character that uh, uh, freaking the mailman from Cheers plays in Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Oh, okay. You know, that one Hoth officer yeah, and stuff? Yeah. He becomes like an intelligence officer. And I did this thing that was like basically this take on this, this like near human fighter fighting an Imperial champion and like winning. It was kind of like uh, a Max Schnelling versus, uh, oh shoot, I'm blanking on the other guy's name. The Brown Bomber. You know, that thing where he beat the Nazi champion and everything. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, I, I and, was and like inspired all these people and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe Lewis. I'm yeah, totally yeah, blanking yeah. on it. Yeah. Joe Lewis. So like, uh, I did this story and it was called Fists of Ion. <laughs> and uh, so I got to come up with like the rules for shock boxing. That was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. That's and pretty then uh, from there, um, God, what did I do after that Star Wars wise? I think I did a, I did a short story called uh, Hammer that was about this, uh, this like Padawan or something that kind of, kind of washed out, you know? And like when you wash out from the Jedi like training or whatever, you get adopted by some uh, master who takes you out as like, and, and you get in these various service corps. And one of them was like the Explorer's Corps or something. So this guy was working as an explorer with another washed out Jedi, and this and his master was this guy that like uh, had lost his Padawan in the arena or something in uh, you know that big arena fight with all the Jedi where Instinct died. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> And uh, so, uh, but the editor that I was working with for that one, that was the one that got in Star Wars Insider. And the editor I was working with on that one, uh, I talked to him at Comic-Con and stuff, and I started pitching the idea of that character. This this Padawan goes to the dark side because he finds this, like, dark side artifact, this armor that belonged to some character that was from Tales of the Jedi comic or something. Uh-huh. And uh, I got cool art by Joe Caroni. You know, he, he did, like, the splash page for the, for the magazine. I got a cool framed you know, painting of the character and everything was signed by him and all that. And uh, we tried to develop it into, uh, he was going to be the big bad in the trilogy of novels, like that I was trying to pitch to them and everything. And the editor got really excited about it. And it was going to take place across various um, eras. It was going to start in like 
uh, Revenge of the Sith and then wind up in like the dark times or whatever. <clears throat> and it involved like uh, uh, rebel explorers, rebel archaeologists versus imperial archaeologists trying to find all these artifacts and stuff. It was going to be kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark. I based it off of like this guy, uh, Otto Ron, that was going after the grail for the Nazis in the 1930s and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was all set to go. Uh, San Diego, I was there. I pitched it to him again. He was like, yeah, this is awesome. We're going to get together. I would get a pitch document together. Contact me two weeks from now. <clears throat> I contacted him two weeks after San Diego and uh, got on the phone with him. And he was like, this is my last day here. <laughs> Literally. And, uh, and then he was like, also Disney is buying uh, everything. Disney's bought. I got the news that, you know, Lucasfilm sold to Disney and uh, mm. everything had been, you know, everything that I'd written before got regulated to uh, legendary status, which means it's non-canonical until somebody new like decides to use it. I'm, and that was that. That was my Star Wars experience, pretty much. I just, I, I tried to get in with other editors, and yeah, I, just, I just couldn't make it happen after that. I mean, from what you've mentioned, the the Raiders of the Lost art story that you were writing for Star Wars, that, that to me, if there was a television show for the expanded universe within Disney, I mean, I would watch that without a doubt. Well, um, I heard that... Uh, there's a character now because I kind of that kind of broke my heart with Star Wars first of all. You know, I, I tried to keep like into the new stuff, and I, there are a couple of things I like. I love Solo. I loved. Uh, oh, I told Josh my Rogue One story. Pablo um, hit me up in the years before like Rogue One came out and said, "Hey, I, you watch a lot of movies. I know we talked about movies and stuff. Like, just give me a list of like man on a mission movies." And I did, and I gave him like. Uh, Eagles Dare, The Wild Bunch, uh, Dirty Dozen, The uh, the Professionals, all these movies. And like, yeah, like I saw the first, two years later, I saw the first kind of cast photo for Rogue One. And uh, I contacted Pablo and was like, dude, when you hit me up for all those movies, was this what it was for and stuff? And he was like, yeah, it was. Like, <laughs> so it sounds like bullshit. And I didn't get like a thank you credit or anything like that. But I like that movie because I feel like I contributed in a very small way to it and stuff. And that was the last thing I ever had any involvement with Star Wars on and everything. But I, I heard that there's this um, character now called Dr. Something. Yeah, Dr. Afra. Like yeah, she's... Dr. She, Afra, yeah. yeah and it sounds like they kind of took a lot of that stuff that I was working on and kind of, yeah, she's, you know, changed it enough to... Yeah, she's basically, they changed it enough from probably what you wrote, but it's basically, she is like yeah. the Indiana Jones. She's like the Indiana Jones of fucking Star Wars almost, so... Yeah, with me, that was going to be Lando's mom. Like, in my book, it would have been Lando's mom. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah, it was going to be like a Calrissian. But, uh, yeah, that was, that's the way it went. That's the way a cookie crumbled. Damn. All right. So did you have something you wanted to ask? I did, but I'm, I'm having trouble with the, uh, with the words, the, the, <laughs> oh, the headphones, the headset, oh. but, uh, Oh, no. oh, here we go. All right. Yeah. I think I got it. I'm just going to, I'm going to hold in my Fox position, like on uh married with children when they would get in a specific position with the antenna <laughs> to make it work. Um, yeah. Uh, so in terms of writing, I, I don't know if this is going to turn into a whole segment of just about the writing process itself, but I just had a question as far as, um, cause something I had trouble with, cause Josh and I tried writing something back when we were, you know, or 10 years ago. And, uh, I have this thing where I feel as though I'm writing the same person 
even if it's not really the case, how is it that you're, you are uh, able to put yourself in all these characters you create regardless of genre without feeling like you are injecting yourself into the story? It's it's unavoidable to inject yourself a little bit, but um, the secret to like being a good writer, I feel like I'm not saying like, I'm not tooting my own horns and I'm a good writer or whatever, but Mm -hmm. I think the most important tool for a writer is empathy just in uh, listening. And um, uh, so I got two awesome pieces of advice from writers. One was reading Stephen King's on writing where he says, uh, read a hundred words for every word you write. That's the one thing I remember from that book. And it's it's perfect because you and, and don't stick to one genre. You know, like don't stick to the genre you read. Read all over the place. Read like classic stuff. Read science fiction. Read stuff from like a hundred years ago. Read stuff from right now. You know, whatever. And uh, read primary documents. When I do uh, history writing, I always look for primary documents, meaning like accounts, first person accounts of people that like lived in that time and everything. So I get the language down, the cadence and like what they thought and stuff. I got this great book called uh, George Hand's Saloon Diary. And it's just fucking diary entries of this saloon owner. And it might be like two lines for a day, you know, uh, got tight today. Mary got the clap, you know, shit like that, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) But you get that language and you get that, like, you get that there was like, you know, people said cocksucker back in the day. I didn't know that unless I read primary documents. You're not going to get that out of a history book. Okay. But like, uh, (laughs) um, the other piece of advice, I went to a writing convention, uh, for horror writers or something. And, um, Joe Lansdale was there and I sat at the table, Joe Lansdale. And he said, he does, he does like, you know, I don't know if you know Joe Orlando. He wrote uh, that happened Leonard series on Netflix. He wrote uh, he wrote my favorite Batman villain. Uh, his episode, all the episodes for uh, Batman the animated series that featured the ventriloquist mm, yeah. <laughs> and Mister Scarface. He did all those and everything. He he wrote a lot of uh, who's that cowboy character DC does with the scar? Oh, Jonah Hex. Jonah Hex. Yeah. Yeah. He did a lot of great Jonah Hex stuff. He's, and he's written like, you know, just books of like weird West stuff and everything. Uh, but he said writing is like a muscle and uh, you have to work it every day at the same, you know, at this, try to get the same amount of time in every day, like two hours, whatever. I think Stephen King writes four hours, but uh, you, you, you work it. And if you don't work it at entropies, you know, like you got to stay in practice, always, just always write. But um, yeah, and, and otherwise it's just in terms of like, how do I make my voice different? I read, I read a lot. I read primary documents. I listen a whole lot. Like I, I I'm sitting, whenever I'm sitting, just listening to the most mundane conversation, I'm picking up. I went to a, uh, I went to this uh, civil war reenactment of all the things with my dad, you know, like a couple number of years ago and everything. And this old dude, like, said, damn, there's not enough. I overheard this old dude, and he was like, damn, there's not enough room in here to cuss a cat without getting a mouthful of hair. Boom, I wrote that right down. You know, like, everything, you know, stuff just, you just listen to the characters around you and kind of put them in there. And then um, in terms of writing like others, you find uh, what resonates for you with that person. Like, you might not be, like, I might not be, like, you know, whatever. So writing Zora. You know, Hurston, I'm not a poor, old, I'm not a poor black woman, you know, <laughs> but I know right. what it means to be poor. And I know what it means to be disappointed with writing. She had all these disappointments and stuff. And uh, you find the empathy that you have with the person that you're writing about mm. and kind of 
So that 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 uh, that old adage about write what you know, you find what you know in each person that you write about. You know, what I mean, you know something. You might not know their experience totally. You might not know what it means to be like a buffalo hunter or like a space marine, whatever. But there are elements of that person's personality that you can that will resonate with you. And if you speak the truth about them, you know, it'll resonate with the reader too. I feel like. Yeah. And some of the elements that you have written in as far as, uh, you know, you've written Westerns and historical fiction, and then you also have these Lovecraftian creatures. Uh, so how did, how and why did you put all those elements together? And then also having a protagonist of Jewish faith, you know, what, what stirred all that? So like, I started out wanting to be Larry McMurtry and like Louis L'Amour and shit. You know, I wanted to write just straight up Westerns because I was like a Western nut at, uh, at, at one point in my life and everything. I still am. But um, I found that I couldn't, like I told you, I went to these Western things and like, you know, I, I just, I, did, I didn't, I didn't walk the walk, you know, mm. I could talk the talk, but I couldn't walk the walk. So um, I found uh robert e howard was a big influence on me i, I started reading some of his uh, stories in high school and everything and you know he did conan he did solomon kane solomon kane's my favorite he did like all this stuff but he did a couple of mashup weird western stories like he did this story called the thunder rider that was about this guy that had repressed memories of being comanche and like fighting like monsters as an indian and stuff mm-hmm. Like he he injected the weird into like Western stuff and everything. I got into weird Western stuff because I couldn't make the regular Western sell, so I had to add ghoulies basically. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just I just started reading more ghoulie stuff and like getting back into that. And uh, yeah, that became a winning combination. And in terms of uh, uh, right of the Jewish uh, angle, that started with uh, my wife picked up one of these cheapo books you get uh on the end cap at like barnes and noble i think it was a dictionary on angels or something you know and i was, I was flipping through it reading all these like angelic names and i came across the term merkaba rider and it's a real thing it's an it's an aesthetic like a uh, jewish mystic like scholar who enters into like a ecstatic state and then leaves his body and uh kind of um traverses like these things there's like seven heavens they're called the seven hecalots and seven palaces and you can ascend all the way up to the top and stand before god you know in, in the presence of god and everything if you can get through all this stuff you wear all these it's it, it mentioned that you they 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 memorize all these prayers and they wear all these like talismans and inscribe them themselves and everything and it just it jumped right into my head you know and everything uh full-blown the the image i got was of uh, uh, I lived in an um, Orthodox neighborhood too in Valley Village, and um, you know had these uh, awesome-looking, you know, Hasids and stuff like walking to the temple on Saturdays and everything, uh, Friday nights and all this. And you know, like, who gets to walk around looking like a cowboy? You know, nobody questions you, you know, and everything all yeah. day long. Uh, so I was, I was interested in that, just like, because I knew nothing about you know, Orthodox Judaism. And I want, I, I just wanted to learn about it. So the part of it was me wanting to learn about why these guys were dressed this way and everything. But I got this image of a Hasidic guy, like in the, in the Orthodox garb and everything on this flaming, like fire horse out of like, uh, cause there's that story of, uh, I think it's, is it Eliza or is it Ezekiel? I think it's Eliza, Elijah, how he's got this flaming chariot that carries him up to heaven. And that's where, Merkaba comes from. Merkaba means chariot. 
so uh, I just it just jumped full blown like this image of this like uh, a seat on a on a horse made out of fire rearing up like the Lone Ranger on silver and shit. And I just went from there. I just started to study more of that and everything. I picked up a book um, on uh, Hebrew. First, I had to learn straight up about Judaism. So I picked up a book on Judaism. You know, like it wasn't Judaism for dummies. It was something. You know, like uh, yeah. Something like the Jewish reader, I don't know, something like that. But then I, I had this book by this guy, Rabbi Jeffrey Dennis, and I was so, dude, I was so pleased. Like a couple of years ago, he actually left a review from Recaba Writer on the freaking on Amazon, oh, that's <laughs> which cool. was cool because uh, I I I pimp his book whenever I can. He wrote this great like uh, dictionary on um on a uh, Judaic like folklore and stuff. And uh, when really when you want to learn about something whether it be a time period or a, uh, a subject or religion or whatever, if you can find one of those dictionaries, like this is a, a something A to Z, just flip through it and read the entire thing. And you'll get this crazy like cross section and smattering of everything and uh, marrying it to Lovecraft. There's all these really cool uh, uh, things that kind of cross over with Judaic um mystic thought and folklore and everything because uh they they have this thing that says um you are forbidden to study what came before creation you're not even supposed to contemplate it hmm. it's like for, it's a forbidden thing of study and that's very lovecraftian you know it's it's like very much like the idea of forbidden study and forbidden works and books and all this and then there's another thing i came across this entry of this creature called rahav or something and they describe it as this creature that God subdued while creating the earth or something, creating the universe. And he threw his body into the waters and it, it gives the ocean its smell. Like the, the, This thing slumbering at the bottom of the ocean gives the ocean its smell. I don't know if Lovecraft read this stuff before he wrote his own shit or whatever, but it just gelled so well, you know, it, it, I wasn't even looking for it. It was like, uh, I just started reading. I only started reading Lovecraft when I started writing Macabre Writer. I needed like a big bad and I didn't want it to be the devil because in Judaic, whatever, the devil is not really a concept, at least not in the way it is in like the exorcist and stuff like that. You know, it's not a, it's not an adversary so much as a guy that works with God to tempt and, and, and like test mankind and everything. Right. So then the whole, the whole point of like Macabre Writer is God, he, preserving creation as it is like first he has his faith tested and realizes that there are these things that exist outside of creation that are more powerful than the God that he worships and all this and knows. And uh, he has to decide is creation worth preserving as it is, you know, because the, 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 the alternative is just roiling chaos, you know, the, 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 the chaos that preceded creation and everything. So it's kind of like he just decides, well, you know, even though my at first his faith is shaken and he's like, you know, he doesn't want to go on. But then it's like, you know, all that I love and all that I've ever known is it worth is it worth preserving. And, you know, that's that's pretty much it is, you know, to him. So right. that's the premise of that series. So, so in in researching and because, you know, you you like to be historically you know, accurate when you're, when you're doing works and things like that. So is that, is that kind of part of the passion of, of the writing for you is, is not just obviously writing it down, but doing that backstory, that back end research. Is that, is that also kind of sort yeah. of a passion for you? 
it's fun to uh, learn. It's like taking a college course without having to pay all the fucking money and <laughs> worrying about the credits and the yeah. grades and all that. Like I do a deep dive on something that I want to write about. Like my book, um, my last couple of books were set in 1977, New York. And I just did a deep dive on all things, 1977, New York, you know, everything that was going on in the summer, Sam, uh, Reggie Jackson, freaking uh, Muhammad Ali, like in the first black mayoral run and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's just all this stuff I learned. I like to learn as I'm writing. So like, I guess I would tack on to that whole uh, write what you love thing or write what you know. I say, write what you know, you love. Don't worry about what you know. You can learn anything. You can learn. You're supposed to learn your entire life. You know, if you ever think you know enough, then you don't. Right, <laughs> you know, right. that, that's that's the bottom line. You obviously don't. You're always going to keep learning. And for me, like writing is a learning experience. I like to push myself and write in things that I don't know anything about. You know, because I, I want to learn about them. So, I I, po- I posit a question for you. Where would there ever be a possibility of writing something like? Uh, is it my dinner with Andre? I think is the title of the movie where it's just a conversational, uh, the whole, the whole book or even maybe a script that you would write that is entirely conversational. Is that something that you would ever want to tackle? Sure. I'll try anything. Honestly, (laughs) um, uh, there are chapters in, uh, like there, I like to, my, my last book, uh, the conquer novel got really, uh, kind of, I did some experimenting in that and everything. And like, so it has to do with um, uh, this this cult who's kind of trying to suppress this magical revolution that turns out to be hip hop. Because hip hop kind of like sprung out of 1977, like inner city New York. And if you think about it, it spread over the entire culture and it totally changed the face of culture and everything. It, it like made, it brought like African-American issues into the forefront and stuff and uh, it was, it was a cultural revolution, I feel like. And I, I, I attribute it to this magical thing and everything, this magical occurrence in my book. It's, it's, the, the book is about a, a cult detective in the 70s and stuff, so it's kind of like Shaft and it's Constantine or something. But um, at one point, he encounters this goddess, this revolutionary goddess who's there to kind of midwife in this, like, this, this act, this magical occurrence. And another cool thing, like, that I read that I learned while reading this. Okay. So like, this is just an aside, but like, uh, hip hop really spread when, cause people couldn't afford all these turntables and electronic shit and everything. Right, right. It spread because of the blackout of 1977 and the blackout happened because people broke into these stores and like the next day, everybody was mixing and everybody was sampling because they got, they, they stole all the electronic equipment. <laughs> they disseminated, they, hip hop basically got disseminated by the 1977 blackout. And the 1977 blackout was caused by a lightning strike, which is fucking crazy if you think about it, you know? So like I worked that in to where this goddess kind of is there to midwife in this magical revolution. She calls down the lightning and shit. And uh, so like I had this whole scene where he's talking to her and she, he knows her as this woman that he knows, but she's possessed and she's just is speaking in all hip hop lyrics. It's all like hip hop lyrics taken from the, the breadth of hip hop, hip hop history. Like, uh, and I, I basically like took as much as, as many lyrics as I could gather and just kind of tried to make sense of them. Like it, it becomes like stream of consciousness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I did that and that was, that was a really interesting like, thing that came to me while I was writing it. And I thought it was kind of experimental and everything. And then, he also has this uh, this car 
that's uh, possessed by the spirit of this pimp that got killed in the trunk. <laughs> and so he kind of drives around in this car, talks to him through the radio and everything. The pimp talks to him through the radio. It's kind of like a 1970s, like Knight Rider. But um, uh, at one point I took, I dove into, I, I took a whole chapter and I went into the pimp's point of view. And it was, it was because I had read, um, I had read, uh, shit, what is it? Iceberg Slim, you know? And like, I wanted to like get into this guy's mind and, and like what it meant to be a pimp in the seventies and like what led you into that life and like how horrible it really was and stuff. Like, it's not, it's not something to be glorified. You know, it's like a horrible, like it's a horrible way to make a living because you're exploiting like, you know, these women and everything. And right. it's, it's, it's how do you get, how do you get to that level and everything? How do you get to that point? And I told this whole, this whole chapter was like a big experiment for me to just write uh, this guy's history from the uh, point of view of this like side character that was a pimp, and it was all like very much in his like you know natural way of speaking, his patois and everything. And you know, I do try to experiment in every little thing. I try to uh, I try and I like to try new things. So yeah, I could see myself writing a whole thing of dialogue, like that one Cormac McCarthy novel, I think, where they're on a train and it's just God and the devil talking. It's the whole book. I mean, it's pretty interesting. Uh, I try to devour stuff like that, and yeah. I think it shows up in my own writing later yeah. in weird ways. And yeah, and yeah I don't want to, I don't want to jerk you off too bad, but honestly, man, that is some <laughs> of the that's like the coolest fucking shit I've ever heard about. Uh, just just the way you come up with this stuff, and honestly, I, people don't fucking get it that don't know, but. It's like this, I don't know, at least for me, when I'm writing or creating, it's like streaming, like you said, streaming consciousness. I'm pulling shit from the ether that one, yes, little, exactly. one, little, one little thought, one little kernel I pulled from the ether and then it explodes into this this fucking idea that just goes in all these different ways and, and run, runs these different routes in your brain. Right, all and, these pathways open up and stuff. Yeah, and, and every little thing that you're experiencing in your life at that time seems to feed it seems to like go into it somehow work it somehow like I, i'll do research and like i'm not researching you know whatever but all of a sudden out of left field this thing comes and says hey look at me you know and you work this in there and stuff and it, and it, it all fits you know everything kind of just falls into place like all creation you're like a funnel yeah for like all this roiling stuff out in the in the in the, in the collective consciousness and you just you make the connections, you know, stuff comes to you and whatever's got the loudest voice, it's going to make its way in. Yeah, exactly. True story. So I, I, I do want to know more about, cause you mentioned earlier about the movie that you, that you made the, the, the film. I, this is definitely going to be its own fucking segment right here for sure. But I, I, I got, I have to fucking know that was what you went to school for. That was what you, that's what you got your degree in. Right. And it took you from, from graduation to making this movie. What, what would you say? 10, 10, 12 years, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. And it was just uh, me with a stupid idea, honestly, like we, um, and it was not a wise decision at all. It was like, we were getting uh, booted out of our apartment building because uh, Kaiser was going to turn it into a parking lot. And they did, they turned our building in Panorama city into a more parking uh -huh. for Kaiser. And they, but they gave us relocation money and I posited to my wife, Hey, can I use this as a egg to make them, you know, make a movie and stuff. And, you know, God bless her. You know, I'm not going to say anything bad about my ex-wife because she let me, uh, you know, she, she, she uh, let me gamble that and everything. And uh, it didn't pay off, not at all. <laughs> but uh, like we should have bought a house with it for sure. 
but then again, what would I have if I had, I'd have a house. Okay. But right. Uh, I'm getting divorced. I'd be fight. We'd be fighting tooth and nail over that house. And, uh, I wouldn't have the experience of, you know, making a grab for what I really wanted to do. I you know, like a lot of people, like you said, like, like you said in the beginning, you know, a lot of people, uh, say they got a book in them, say they want to write, but then don't do it. And a lot of people say they want to make a movie, but you know, maybe it didn't, you know, maybe it didn't work, but like, uh, like R.P. McMurphy, at least I tried, God damn it, you know? Yeah, you're the 1% as far as we're concerned. You, you put the effort in, you completed it. So, I mean, in our in our own definition, you are, I mean, a winner because you, you did it. Like, I don't know how else to put it. Like, you're the, I respect that dearly. Like, I, I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. Uh, that's really nice to hear. Thank you. Yeah. It's, 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 it's on Amazon, too. You can watch it on Amazon. What's, now, the, what's the name of it real and quick I, again? I I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I would say skip to, no, no, what's the, to the last half hour. What's the name of it? What, what's uh, the name of the movie? It's called Meaner. It's called Meaner Than Hell. I got it from a Johnny Cash song. Meaner which than a Hell. A lot of my things come from Johnny Cash because my dad like like had this tape that we went on a road trip in the Bronco. He always had Johnny Cash playing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Meaner Than Hell was the name of it. And it, was, and it was a straight up western with no fucking horses because I couldn't afford horses. <laughs> I couldn't afford like horse trainers. Yeah. I just put like, I opened it in a, in this, in this dark desert in a campfire. It's only lit by the campfire and you can only see their faces and you can hear the horses in the background and the guy runs the horses off in the first scene. <laughs> That's how we got rid of the horses. <laughs> perfect. That's a perfect way to come. It's, it's the, it's, it's, I know you're, maybe you, you don't know uh, pro wrestling like me and Adam, but it's the, it's the Paul Heyman esque type of of mantra where you hide the negatives accentuate the positives i ain't got no money for horses yeah. so i'm gonna run these ass horses out of here uh first sequence yeah. and then i don't gotta worry about horses anymore <laughs> yeah in the dark we can't see yeah. them riding away exactly yeah, um, yeah it, it was basically this bounty hunter comes across these outlaws in a desert and he runs their horses off and he's he's only after the one so he shoots all the other ones keeps the boss alive shoots him in the foot so he's getting this gangrenous foot that, that was the idea he was gonna have this gangrenous foot getting worse and worse throughout the whole movie right because he's he says i'm only going to take you to a doctor until you tell me where the money from your last job is where you hit it and he dynamited a gambling boat basically so he didn't even get the money it, like it <laughs> went to the bottom of the lake so yeah. he doesn't tell them that till later but so then it becomes this bounty hunter this outlaw trying to get to town because they, they wake up the next day and the bounty hunter's horse is gone as well because Apache Indians stole it. So they're stuck in the desert and they're like kind of chained to it's It's kind of like a chain, the chain to each other. What's that thing? I can't think of the, the name of the original uh, with Sidney Portier and uh, Tony Curtis. Anyway, they're, they're going across the desert on foot and the one guy's got a bad foot that's separating and getting worse. And they're, I called it uh at one point, the guy has a line that what we're doing here is we're playing a game of matrimonial poker. We're both trying to fuck each other. <laughs> so like <laughs> they're going through the desert and they're 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 trying to contend with this threat of unseen threat of Indians because I can only afford one real Indian guy <laughs> and uh, um, and trying to kill each other at the same time. Yeah, so it's it's like a it's it's a two man movie basically. Right, right. So speaking but, of affording um, things, what? So when you made, when you set this out, what was the budget that you set essentially? And then what, what did you actually spend? And I guess to, to truncate that question, did you, did you spend more than what you set out to? 
I don't think I spent more. No, my budget was eight thousand, eight grand. That's what we got. And um, two of my friends came forward with a grand each. So that was like a bo- a boon, you know. That was like a bonus. Yeah. And they also came out like my buddy also came out flew from Chicago with a grand and like crude for me and stuff too. You know, like he helped out and shit. Yeah, yeah. This is my buddy since from like kindergarten, you know. And um, yeah, so we I spent whatever I had, you know. I had like uh, ten grand, and we did. Um, I uh, got the camera that was like three grand, so really about seven grand, honestly. I got a three thousand dollar camera. Yeah. Did you buy it? But you bought the camera? Oh yeah, yeah. Because I didn't want to. I was. I knew I was going out to Death Valley. Oh. And I knew I was going to be fucking around, and I didn't want to worry about buying somebody else's camera. I'm like, if I'm going to fuck this camera up, it's going to be my own camera, you know. Well, did you fuck the camera so, up, or did you? <laughs> Uh, it, I got a lot of grit and sand underneath the lens and shit. Yeah, yeah, it got pretty fucked up. And then like my daughter ended up dropping something. I mean, my little daughter, I was going over footage. She dropped like something on it, shot the tape on it and it totally fucked up the monitor. So it was completely fucked up. Yeah. Ah, that sucks. But Hey, you got the one yeah. use out of it. But it was a digital tape. It was a digital tape camera. So it was totally, it was pretty much in two years. It was, it was no good. Yeah, anyway, it was obsolete. You know? Yeah, it was done. Yeah, it was obsolete. <laughs> Okay. But, uh, so, most of it was spent on the actors and on the uh, my mom and my uh, and my ex also were seamstresses, so they could like they sewed a lot of the costumes. Other whatever I couldn't sew, whatever they couldn't sew, I bought you know from like these frontier places and stuff. I did yeah. the hats mainly, like the hats. Uh, the guns were. My dad was a cop, like I mentioned, I think in Chicago, he had a lot of old black powder pistols that he liked to, to fire, you know, just as a hobby. He let me use them, and it's like, you know, we just load the we just loaded the pistols with black powder and didn't put any loads in them, so you didn't have blanks. Right. It just it made a big pop and a flare, and nothing came out of it. It was fire and smoke, you know? So we didn't have to buy blank guns or anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. We did, the only time we paid for... A location was we filmed the last scene in this state park up north called Bodie. That's this like abandoned ghost town. And I had to, I, I, I only paid for it because I had to. I had to have a, a park ranger on site for two hours while I filmed. And I was basically filming the park ranger. I mean, like <laughs> paying the park ranger. Right, just to sit there. Yeah. And, and, but all the actors got paid. Like, I don't remember how much exactly. Some guys got as low as like 50 bucks. You know, if they were just there for the day. We went, um, we were so short. I put out a call in variety for like Native American actors. I didn't get a one, dude. I got like a Middle Eastern dude. I got <laughs> my my best friend at the time was Mexican. I got him. Uh, my son is like part Mexican, so we we put a we put a wig on him, you know, and like a fucking um. So on, on the way up to Bodie, we hit an Indian casino, and my buddy's my buddy uh, Elliot, who was the the assistant director just went through with money and was like anybody who wants to be on this and we got one guy who's like perfect looking he looked like fucking geronimo we put him out front and the other guys behind him (laughs) (laughs) and we paid him like 80 bucks or something oh no we paid him a little bit more than that because he got what we were budgeted for all the other indians we just gave it to him because he was the only guy that showed up (laughs) that's pretty that's pretty awesome he stayed under budget too that's pretty amazing yeah, 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 we didn't go over. Because, um, yeah, the other thing was uh, we had an editor. My buddy does uh, editing. He cuts. Um, at the time, he was working for Game Show Network doing, like, promos. 
So he had all the editing software at home. He, so he had, we got to edit for free. My other buddy does uh, uh, SFX makeup. So all the bullet wounds and shit were all like him. And Caro's buckets of Caro syrup. We brought my minivan home. My Saturn minivan looked like... Uh, like, like we gave birth in the back of the fucking thing or something. It was just a complete slaughterhouse. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was a fun time. It was a it was the most fun I ever had failing. <laughs> you know, like I pretty much failed. But uh, there was one point though, man. Uh, like just uh, one day that we filmed in Ballarat, this crazy ass like little town out in the middle, of, like past past that valley in the middle of that valley by edwards air force base we had to stop sometimes because like f-16s would be flying over and shit or 18s which are the ones that are on land base 16s i think anyway but they'd be booming over the mountains yeah like top gun they'd be booming over the mountains and shit we had to stop um and this one crazy dude lived out there in this in this like crummy like you know local museum with his dad, his elderly father. And he, I swear he had one eye that was reptilian. I swear to God. The one eye was just blown out and he had a sliver of an iris. It was the weirdest thing. And um, we, we were out there and we were filming in this cabin. We had this cabin shot. It was the best, best day I ever had. Probably one of the best days I ever had in my life because we were fighting the sun. The sun was going down and everything was going exactly as it, I pictured it, you know, in, in the script and everything. And, they, and the guys were hitting their lines. Perfect. It was this surprise moment. And I was ruining the fucking take too, because it's this surprise moment where this guy's been hiding this like Derringer all along. And he, they're, they're in the middle of laughing. Like they, they pulled this, they shoot this guy, this Indian air quotes. <laughs> and uh, somebody drags his body away out of the door like because they're not going to leave their dead or whatever because they're getting they're getting besieged in this cabin and shit. And the one guy says to the other guy something like his his squaw must have had dinner waiting or something. And they all start they both start laughing. And in the middle of the laugh, he pulls the derringer out and pops the guy in the face. And it was so fucking perfect. He did the reaction, like the the gun went off perfect and all this. And I almost ruined the tape because I went fuck. <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of the thing <laughs> I think you probably had to edit me out or something but yeah that was the best day I had shooting man and like uh, we were fighting the light we were getting all the we had to do all the makeup real fast so this bullet wound in his face and like uh, uh, yeah everything just hit perfect and I like it was so good that like like a couple of like maybe two years later or something we went back there to give the guy that lived there a DVD copy of this and everything I, I remember when the sun went down on the on that day of shooting um the guy had this kiddie pool and all these fucking bats came down from the mountains and just lit on this pool and we're drinking water and flying all over the place and screeching and everything it was the weirdest thing um but i came back like two years later i gave this guy a dvd and like i was walking around that cabin and the cabin had fallen in and shit and i got all misty eyed dude because i got really like emotional i was like this was this right here like two years ago i was the happiest i had been in my life at that time yeah it was just it was a really cool experience well i mean that's where that was where that was where you created some art right you you fucking poured you poured your shit into it not only on the back end with writing it but you were there creating it in the moment with these guys and honestly 
that that's the thing that's not not to fucking sound religious or anything stupid like that but man that that's like to me that's like what god is right it's like that whole thing of man you're there with your dudes you're creating something and it's like these moments that you could never you can't quantify it it's not tangible in any in any way it's almost not even articulate or articulable in in words to describe the feeling of of sitting there and creating something in that moment, but it's, it's just, it's religious is almost really the best way it's to describe divine, it. Yeah. It's divine. You're touching, like you're creating, you, you are creating as God creates. Yeah. It's something, it's really something. I, I totally agree with you. It's like a mystical experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I got but, all emotional when I went two years later, I hadn't been there in two years. I went back to the same spot and I was like, yeah. I was, it was like, I was on a pilgrimage, you know, and I went to this place where like I went to Calgary or some yeah. shit. You know? Yeah. Did you, did you have the, uh, I got crucified there. Yeah. Did you have I'm the, the one that uh, got crucified. <laughs> yeah. Did you have the cloak on over your head as you walk up and you're just like, just looking yeah. all somber and shit. <laughs> yeah. Put my head to the earth and all this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know? Um, when you, when you, uh, when you gave that guy the, uh, the old reptile eye, did, when you gave him the DVD, did he look at this? Rocky, and go, his name was, this is Rocky, Rocky. It couldn't be anything else but Rocky. Did, did he, <laughs> no, did he no. look, did he look at the DVD and, and just look at you and say, I, I don't have a thing for this? Like, <laughs> no, he had a DVD. Oh, okay. I was, I was really, I was like, man, do you have a DVD? And he was like, oh yeah, man, we got a DVD player. I watch movies <laughs> with my dad. So perfect. Oh man, that's great. So he's got a copy. He's got a copy. Do you uh do you but have the, any He told us ghost stories and shit. It was oh, crazy. Yeah. He told us like stories about ghost miners and all kinds of shit out there. It was awesome. Oh yeah, shit man, that, see on his porch. That whole Edwards Air Force Base area, because that's where that's where Katie, my wife, goes out to Wasteland weekend every fucking year, right? It's a little oh, like, like California okay, yeah. City. Like honestly, I feel the, the reptile eye guy, yeah, I swear to God, I've too. met I've met a dude out there in California City that that has that fucking I don't know if it's the same guy or not. I don't remember what the dude's name was, but he ran <laughs> he's a local celebrity. You can you can look him up on email. Anybody that goes to like <laughs> if anybody has a reason to go to Ballarat, you've got to stop there. He's the only guy. Yeah, yeah. There, there was there was a dude that had this shop. He was like an old hippie guy in California City. And he he just has this. He was a weird dude. And as I'm in there, just kind of trying to kill time, waiting for her to come come back so I can drive the U-Haul out. We're, I'm literally in this <laughs> shop, and I'm looking for. He has all these old um like record posters or, or whatever of like he had Jimi Hendrix. He had you know for all like yeah. Led Zeppelin. Had all these, and they were all original. They weren't original. Yeah, because yeah. he was there. And, and yeah, exactly. And he had all this shit, and he's sitting there and he's selling them. And man, he's not. He's selling them on the cheap. I got the. I got a bunch of. Godzilla posters from him. The original, they weren't oh, copies. They wow. were like original ones. And he sold them to me for like 15 bucks a pop. And cool, so man. I got a bunch of them. But anyway, so as I'm in that store, I swear to God, man, this dude comes in with this fucking, like he had one, like one fucking lizard eye. I don't know. It was it, now that you say it, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, it didn't click in my head reptile eye. But now that you say that it like brought up a, a core memory. And I said, you know what? That, that reminds me of that fucking guy I saw in that store. And he went in there and they chopped it up and then he left. But I'm like, man, I wonder if that's the same dude. Cause it's all like the same area out there. So that'd be funny as shit. If it was the same guy. He had like I, he had hair when I filmed, but then when we went back, he had shaved his head and he looked like that yellow bastard. Remember that Sin City spinoff guy? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that character he looked like that yellow bastard. Yeah, that's fucking great. <laughs> um, so yeah. did you in making this film? Do you have any any regrets or anything that you wish you would have done different? If you could go around and decide um, for not making the film. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't regret that for sure. I because re- I definitely would have regretted not doing it. I feel like I'd have been I'd been eating my own I'd been chewing my own guts if I yeah. hadn't done it. But like, 
um, I wanted to shoot the thing like a spaghetti Western and Foley the entire movie. I didn't want to use any live sound at all. And my whole crew turned on me. Everybody involved were like, we do not want to do that. Like, and I had to, so at the last minute I caved and I had to buy like a shotgun mic and a, you know, boom and all this. And I was not planning on any of that. And I don't think the sound's very great. And uh, if I had to do it over, I'd have been like, you know, it's my way or the highway. <laughs> we're going to do Foley sound. We're going to do this whole thing. Like, like fucking a good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, no, no live sound at all. Maybe I'll play some music for you guys, whatever. That's what <laughs> I wanted to do in my head, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, everybody rebelled on me. And uh, I wish I had not done that because the sound is like crummy apart, you know, like there was, there was one night when we were filming in that cabin and the wind was blowing and it was just like, you know, constantly over everything. And there's, yeah. And there's nothing you can do to, to change that. It's just there. Yeah. Yeah. And I could have kept, I could have maintained the same sound quality if I'd have just controlled it entirely like I wanted to, but didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get you. I get you. But all right. So, so Adam, do you have any other questions about the movie thing? No, no. Okay. All right. So, uh, I kind of feel like we're getting, you know, we're getting a little towards the, towards the end here of this, of this interview. So mm-hmm. I would like to know, I mean, we've been going for an hour and 40 minutes. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty fucking good. Mainly. Oh, my throat's sore. I feel oh. like I've been preaching up there. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we want to hear the story, you know, shit. But, uh, so, so mm-hmm. do you have any, what's, what's your, what's your, some, or goddamn, if I could know how to, if I knew how to talk, what, what is a current thing that you're working on and what are some of the future any future projects you have that you're you're looking forward to putting out? I've decided after doing this, this kind of like pastiche toilet for the love novel, I don't expect, I expect to get, if I don't get sued for it, I'll be happy, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I decided to step back and like, uh, try to go back to screenwriting a little bit. I did this short story and I told you about it at work, Josh, but like I yeah. did, did this short story a while back, um, about, uh, this kid, who's like these two kids in the projects who are all into like uh, Kung Fu and hip hop and like Wu-Tang and stuff like this. And the one kid is heavy into flying guillotine, flying, flying guillotine, uh, the flying guillotine movies where the guys, th- you know, throw this chain like a hundred feet and a little basket drops down and you yank their heads off and stuff. Great movies are so much fun. I really recommend them. But um, so I-, I wanted to do a slasher. Um, there's this movie called the Kung Fu killer from back in the nineties or maybe early two thousands or something that opens, it's a Hong Kong movie and it opens with these cops doing a forensic, uh, investigation of a scene in the tunnel. And it's of a Wusha fight. Like there was a, there's a crazy wire food fight in this like space and they're treating it all scientifically. And they're like, <laughs> they're doing the bullet trajectories and, and the sword cut on the top of the tunnel. Like how did he get up there and all this? I love that. And I'm extrapolating from that. I, I wanted to do this slasher that's like uh, an ode to like the crossover between Kung Fu and hip hop and stuff. So it's this slasher where the character is like basically a flying guillotine killer. It's called the FG Killer. And um, I did a short story on it. And I sold it to the slasher anthem and I've been thinking about it a lot. And so now I'm trying to write it as a script or something I would like kind of like to do i want to do another movie for sure don't know how i don't know how i'm gonna make it happen you know i don't have a i don't have a nobody's nobody's paying me money to move anymore so uh <laughs> i don't know how i'm gonna make it happen let me try to i want to try to do a movie on this you know like a, a kung fu slasher that's got an all hip-hop soundtrack with like 
underground guys like uh, Afro and um, I don't know. There's a lot of you. You're in you're in Black Rock stuff like that. Just uh, just a heavy hip hop slasher kung fu movie. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's. I, I'm really excited about it right now. I'm working on that. And then um, in the future. Uh, I'm going to go back to books. I'm probably going to do, um, people have been asking for, uh, I teased, um, like a, a prequel to Mercabra writer, which was like, I hate to do prequels, but it was like, I had all these civil war stories Yeah. that I wrote, like I wrote seeds for, and then I never used them. So I thought about doing that. I thought about doing, um, I've been doing, I did two like prison novels. I did Andersonville and then I did, uh, I count Auschwitz, uh, Monstrum Fuhrer as like a prison thing. And I got this prison trilogy in my head. The next book I want to do with the last book I want to do in it is set at Angola prison. You know, the, the, that crazy, like chain gang prison in the South. Okay. And, uh, I want to have this, uh, I got to give it a weird angle and the weird angle is this, uh, this this vampire hunter is hunting this vampire that killed his family, and the guy is so dogged. The vampire just decides to go to prison, <laughs> to a maximum security prison, and just outlive the fucking guy. Like he he commits a public crime and gets put in a maximum prison, and then he starts slowly influencing everybody in this Angola prison and kind of like taking over while he's in this prison. So the vampire hunter goes and commits another crime <laughs> to get in the prison with the guy. Yeah. And it's like, so it's like he's hunting this guy, hunting this vampire in Angola prison and everything. And it's called Ditch Bank Blade. That's probably the next thing I'm going to try to work on and stuff. All right. Well, that sounds pretty awesome. When, when can people expect to potentially uh, have that out for, for their reading pleasure? Oh, hell man. I, don't know. I didn't start <laughs> that. Already I'm putting pressure on, pressure on it. That's what I do, man. Yeah. I, I put the pressure on him. Well, you know what? You know what? The thirteenth novel came about because I was on another podcast, and the guy I just offhandedly said, "Yeah, if I was going to do another Friday Thirteenth movie, this is what I'd do." And the guy was like, "You got to write that." And then I, I ended up writing it. So, like, who knows? You know, pressure me. Oh, well, well, here this this podcast. <laughs> I'm telling you, not only do you have to do the fucking the the flying guillotine hip hop movie, but I, we we need to do that. I think we should fucking make that movie <laughs> yeah. together. I think that'd yeah, be fucking awesome. It, I mean, Jesus, that'd be yeah, amazing. I would love to do it. I, yeah, I and I want to. I'm like the best thing to do is to work. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. I want to talk about. Oh that. no, go no, ahead. go ahead. I was just gonna say the best thing to do, man, is to work with people that are passionate about something like. I don't really want to, like I was for a long time, I was trying to sell scripts, trying to sell scripts, trying to make that money and everything. But like you sell a script and it's not, the story's not yours anymore. It goes through like mm. 40 million guys that don't give a fuck about it. They're just getting paid. And then when it kind of finally gets made, it's a bunch of union guys sitting around and they don't want to really be there, you know, cause they don't care. It's so much more, it's so much cooler, man, to work with a bunch of people who like all believe in the project and all want something to happen and stuff. And like, you all want to get lifted up with it and everything, even though nobody got lifted on my <laughs> fucking last movie. <laughs> well, actually one of the actors is like a director for asylum. Now he works constantly. He goes to fucking, he flies to fucking Thailand. One of his movies was on, uh, uh what's that show where they make fun of shit. <laughs> No, it was, it was Mr. Science Theater. Oh, okay. yeah. right. he, the last season of Mr. Science Theater, one of his movies got Atlantic Rim, Jared Cohen. Yeah. He was the star of Meaner Than Hell. 
<laughs> oh, see, there you go. So you had a positive impact on somebody's uh, career trajectory. I guess. <laughs> he was not happy about being made fun of on Mr. Sims Theater, but I thought it was awesome. I was, I was like, congratulations, man. I think that's amazing. Yeah, that means you made it. But, uh, Shit. Up to me, that's fucking cool, man. You're in the, you're in the zeitgeist. You're in the pop. You're, yeah. you're a pop culture. Man. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, as far as the hip hop slasher film, I mean, I don't know why, or rather the Kung Fu. Uh, it makes me think of this uh, this series on Adult Swim called, uh, well, I don't know if it's, I think it's ended by this point, but uh, it's called Boondocks. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, Oh, Boondocks Saints. Uh, the Boondocks. I mean, yeah, 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 the Boondocks. Yeah, yeah. I think. It, Huey and all that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, something of that vein as far as uh, a kung fu movie. I mean, I, I don't know if it was comedic, but I could already kind of see it in that same light. Uh, I, I think it'd be a really cool idea. There's a because there's an element of the one of the four elements of hip hop is break is b boying break dancing yeah mm-hmm. and they got those moves from watching like Five Fingers of Death in the seventies grindhouse theaters and shit and pulling that mm-hmm. shit out if you see them like the old the old footage of those guys like squaring off and stuff it's like a kung fu movie you know they the guys like square off at each other and the one guy drops down and does all these moves and poses and everybody kind of stands back like they do you know when like bruce lee's fighting everybody in chinese connection and shit. yeah 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 right um, so like it's it's an element you know it it it, it create it it influenced the culture and i, I just want to like do something that comments on that and everything yeah yeah. because i got some higher whatever i also i just think it'd be pretty fucking cool but yeah yeah it would just be cool as shit to do um but yeah. r- before we go i i would be remiss if i didn't ask you about this but uh you're you're friends with with tom kenny the guy who who does the, the voice of spongebob squarepants right so he's told I'm, me he loves me yeah. i'm just i'm just curious how did that how did you meet that guy and how'd you get how'd you con him into being friends with you <laughs> right? I? I think about that all the time like I, I go to a movie with them and i sit there and i'm like who the fuck am i you know uh we went to we went to watch some western the other night at the at the newer and fucking um Glenn tarantino was sitting in front of us it was fucking crazy that is great but uh um yeah my daughter and his daughter went to school together at uh you know Burbank High and they um, got in uh, my daughter crewed on the Wizard of Oz and his daughter was Dorothy and they had a fundraiser at his house and uh, his wife is Jill Tolley she's the computer wife on Spongebob and she was on Mr. Show with him she's hilarious from Mm. Chicago like kind of the same area Mm. I'm from and stuff and I actually like saw her first at this barbecue or whatever at their house and was like you know Jill I was said I wasn't going to say nothing but like there's this line you did in Mr. Show um Shut that baby up! That I always say to my kids, <laughs> and uh, she, you know, she correct up or whatever. And then Tom came around. He has this back house. He has this little like guest house, and, and like um, Bobcat Goldthwait is his best friend. He stays no there. No way. And he comes in town and stuff. Yeah, I met him too. He's great. I love um, that guy. Oh my god. Oh wow. He, dude, did you ever see a uh, uh, World's Greatest Dad? No, I don't think I have. Oh, that's a movie, uh, Bobcat they're best friends from like childhood, man. They're friends. Mm. Like they were on a, I got this, they got this picture of them on a couch when they're kids. Yeah. Cause he's Bobcat and Tom was Tomcat. Like that was their nicknames or whatever. Right. But like uh world's greatest dad with Robin Williams, dude, watch that. It's the best thing Robin Williams has ever done. It's fucking amazing. He, 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 he finds his son dead in his room of suicide and he was choking himself out while masturbating. <laughs> so like, so like Robin Williams has to like write a suicide note in his son's hand and everything and pretend 
that he killed himself like because he was depressed. Right. And then the whole school rallies behind this shit, and he's just he's just riding this lie. It's so great. It's such a great movie. Have you seen? But, uh, uh, have you happened to see uh, Shakes the Clown with Bobcat? I gotta see that because Tom is in it. I've never seen it. Oh, I've never so, seen Shakes the Clown. Oh, it's so good. It's it's um. I don't know how to describe it. It's just it's just the movie you have to see with with him. So if you ever get a chance, I, I don't I don't even know where you stream it because it's not one of those larger distributed movies or I, I don't maybe even know maybe Tubi or something. Maybe, uh, but if you ever get a chance to see, see see Shakes the Clown, it's it's pretty it's pretty great. I gotta check that out. Um, who was it going? Oh, but he had this guest house, right? Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. And uh, uh. He had a Johnny Cash poster autographed in there. And I told you how with my dad, like, ingrained Johnny Cash in me from, yeah, like, yeah. a young age and everything. So, like, Tom was whatever, making the rounds and shit, like, around this party. He showed up later, and I kind of went up to him and was like, hey, man, I saw that Johnny Cash poster you got in the back. Did you buy that signed, or did you actually meet him? And he was like, dude, I met him in the 70s, like, when he was not, he was on a low, you know? And, like, there was no line, you know? He was just in a mall, and, like, he was signing shit, and I had him sign. He had... He had him signed a poster for this movie he was in where he like fights uh, Kirk Douglas in a in a gunfight in a bullfighting arena like for money. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I can't think of the name of it. The gunfight or something. I think it's called. But uh, yeah, he, he said, yeah. And I got to sit there and talk to him. And then like June Carter came along with a, ba- with a bunch of bags full of like shit that she bought and she left him with them and stuff. And so we kind of bonded over that. Like just talking about music and then from there we started talking comics like uh he's a big we're both big plastic man fans and oh, yeah. like, uh, and he was talking just movies and then i said he asked me what i did i started talking about my writing and stuff i wrote and he was like into westerns and yeah and then we started going to movies together and uh we go to luchador we go to mexican wrestling like all the time and stuff like we just hit it off because we had the same interests basically yeah i was, it's, I was it's telling weird. You. it's such a weird hollywood kind of thing that never ever happened to me in the 19 you know however many years i've been out here i yeah. didn't i didn't befriend any celebrities until like this dude but he's a great dude he's really fun he's fun to be around he, he gathers all these people around i call him like planet tom you know everybody kind of goes in orbit around him and shit yeah, yeah. I, I was just so Adam knows when, when Ed told me about this that he that he goes and sees fucking Mexican wrestling yeah. with SpongeBob SquarePants. I was like, "Are you fucking shitting me? Why didn't? You, why is it that we've known each other for months and this is the first I'm hearing of this? You didn't fucking open with this? That would be. It's, it's not really, you know, I feel like that's an opener. I feel like I don't want to. You know, it sounds like I'm being an asshole. No, yeah. Like, oh, you, by the way, listen. You be like, that's anytime you meet someone, you should just say, "Hey, oh, hey, just just so you know, I I know Tom Kenny, and we go watch we go watch Mexican wrestling together. That's but, that's the." Oh, that's all you gotta say. Yeah, but yeah, I said, dude, next time you guys go, if if he would be down, let me know because ah, we would love to go to fucking watch Mexican wrestling because I mean we just love wrestling in general too. So we, you know we have a whole wrestling yeah, podcast. So. Down to meet people, dude. Like all my all my guys that worked on my movie, like know him now. You know, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. we just uh, we go to bar. He he's got a band, dude. One thing you don't know about him, he has a band that's like uh, he he does sixty soul music. Sixty. He's soul got music. Uh, three background. Got three background singers. Yeah, he he just put a uh, he he did a Chuck Berry song. Uh, gave me a shout out the first time he did it. It was awesome. It was a uh, my favorite Chuck Berry song. Uh, what the fuck is it? I'm blanking now. Nadine. Uh, he does Nadine. He does he does like Expressway to Your Love. He does all these like you know crazy ass like he likes obscure '60s '50s kind of stuff and everything. Yeah, yeah. And he's got like a brass band and like he got a full full band behind him and stuff. 
And uh, he does shows like all over LA and stuff. He's he's doing a show on Saturday, I think, actually somewhere. Oh, that's cool. Well, um, yeah, yeah, he's he sh- on Instagram. <laughs> not that, Tom not that he in the high seas. Yeah, I'll yeah. plug him. I'll plug yeah, his yeah. hand. Yeah, not that he, not that he needs it, but you know, hey, Tom Kenny, no, good dude. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, good dude, great guy. Good dude, man. Just sounds like a general good dude. All right. Yeah, he's a nice guy. Very funny. Yeah, definitely not in the Hollywood Illuminati or whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I take. He, I took my kids over trick or treating at his house. Yeah, and uh, my son, who's like tw- was like twelve or eleven at the time goes uh he's very deadpan my son <laughs> he, he meets tom and, and he's like so do a lot of celebrities live around here and he was like tom was just like yeah c-listers <laughs> he was like you know delta burke <laughs> oh shit that's awesome oh, oh man well anyways well i think that is a great way to wrap it up so thank you again, Ed, for coming on. You know, we really, we really appreciate it. And, and I'm going to bully you into, into making that fucking movie with us. The, yeah, that sounds good, man. The, 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 the flying guillotine Shaolin movie. So yeah, it wouldn't take too much twisting. It just takes money. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically. So, uh, anyway, Adam, mm. do you have anything to say before we go? No, I don't. I mean, it was just, uh, it was riveting to hear, the words and stylings of Ed, uh, of, of Edward Erdelag. Musings, nice. yeah, it was, yeah, it was just a real joy to hear you talk, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it was, it was nice meeting you, man. Thanks for having me, like virtually meeting you. It was, <laughs> thanks for having me on and just let me like go on and on and on. I appreciate an audience talking about my favorite uh, subject myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great! I love that. Anyways, all right. Well, again, if you want to find Ed, you can you can spell his last name E R D E L A C. Just put that in the Google or the fucking Twitter or whatever. And uh, yeah, he's he's on some of those. So uh, you yeah. know, find him there. Uh, you'll you'll hear in the well, not that you assholes follow us, but you'll hear in the bumper uh, at the end <laughs> here. Um, you know, all, all of our all of our social medias to to go to. Uh, Adam, all gas, no trash, official, and and you 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 know the game rage ones. You'll hear it. But anyways, thank you guys for listening if you're in belgium uh buy the fucking book i'd like to see some numbers for ed go up in belgium i would also like to see the fucking movie downloads on amazon for his movie i'd also like to see those go up and in belgium as well uh so we can maybe help ed get big in in belgium all right let's let's, (laughs) maybe that's the next movie we do a documentary ed ed erdelak takes belgium hey dude if tommy was belgium if tommy was so can make the room and somehow become a celebrity and and rich we we could we could do it too oh man. yeah man we could easily do it yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> i believe anyways all right well that does it for us so thank you guys for listening we will uh catch you on the next episode of the without censor podcast That was Without Censor, the Game Rage Magazine interview podcast. Visit www.gameragemagazine.com for the full menu of podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Game Rage Magazine. Also on X at Game Rage Mag for all the latest episodes and content. Thanks again for listening. Except if you're with the FCC, then go on, get, get out of here. Go on, go on, get. Get.